Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norton. I'm joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And Matt Lamborn. Hello. Um, as we take a look over the last, uh, what we've watched in, in film the last week or so, and our fifth inductee into our corridor of praise, uh, Paul Verhoeven, as, yes. well, as well as a finally a review of the documentary Next Goal Wins, which I was invited to see on behalf of ourselves and Born Offside, um, which I've been under embargo for for about the last three or four weeks. Finally, I can talk about it. About time we get to hear about that one. Yeah. Um, first off, we start with the quiz, as we always do, and an apology from Owen. <laughs> yeah, I may have um, exaggerated just how many points I had prior to that last quiz. Uh, it seems we are actually drawing, Steve, and I wasn't winning mm. two one. Although I am now. I still think my point last week came to, and if I'm if I'm honest, I think I should have had a bonus point for all the um the, the bogey prizes you, you skipped on. You didn't watch any of those. No, I wa- I didn't watch one. I, I watched half of another and because it was a film that had no narrative, I didn't see the point in watching any more. <laughs> well, that's just cheating in my book, so I think I should keep the point, but nobody else does. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norn. I'm joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And Matt Lamborn. Hello. Um, as we take a look over the last, uh, what we've watched in, in film the last week or so, and our fifth inductee into our corridor of praise, uh, Paul Verhoeven, as, yes. well, as well as a finally a review of the documentary Next Goal Wins, which I was invited to see on behalf of ourselves and Born Offside, um, 
which has been an under embargo for for about the last three or four weeks. Finally, I can talk about it. Yeah, about time we get to hear about that one. Yes. Yeah. Um, first off, we start with the quiz, as we always do, and an apology from Owen. <laughs> yeah, I may have um, exaggerated just how many points I had prior to that last quiz. Uh, it seems we are actually drawing, Steve, and I wasn't winning mm. too Although I am now, I still think my point last week games. And if I'm if I'm honest, I think I should have had a bonus point for all the um the the bogey prizes you you skipped on. You didn't watch any of those. No, I wa- I didn't watch one. I, I watched half of another, and because cause it was a film that had no narrative, I didn't see the point in watching any more. <laughs> well, that's just cheating in my book. So I think <laughs> I should keep the point, but nobody else does. No. Which is probably the fair result. So, so, so we'll restart at 2-1 with, with Matt deputising as quiz master. Yeah, I'm going to bring some integrity back to this quiz. So you guys better be on your best behaviour. Okay, so for this week's quiz, uh, we're going to start in 1989 with Born on the 4th of July. Owen. Tom Cruise. No, Owen. No. <laughs> that would okay. be too easy. That would be too okay, uh, moving on to 1991 with Point Break. Steve. Yep. Is it Patrick Swayze? No. Oh. No takers for Bodie, I'm afraid. Okay, uh, 1992, Passenger 57. Steve, I don't think it is him. But is it Keanu Reeves? No. No. Mm, no, no, I don't know yet. Okay. They should get a little bit more clear the further we go along. So, 1993, True Romance. Mm. I'm not even going to guess yet. I'm going to leave it. It's probably, it's probably, it probably happens every week where there's people listening and they go, they're screaming at us who it is. There's people just... listening? <laughs> it's usually me. <laughs> no. So, uh, okay, we'll move on to the next one then. 1993, uh, sorry, that was the last one. 94, Wyatt Earp. 94, Wyatt Earp. Yeah. I feel like then... I should know it. I think you'll get it at the end. Okay. But, uh, these are tough because there's quite a lot of big actors in these. It seems like they've been so, in some big films already. So, I mean... Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, same year, 94, we've got Natural Born Killers. Bloody hell. I definitely should know this, shouldn't I? Fuck. I think we both uh, Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, we're starting to get to the good stuff now. So, 95, Heat. Ah, Val Kilmer. No. Uh, Any takers, Steve? No, not yet. Still still in thought. Uh, 
the next two are the clinchers, so uh, if you okay. don't get from these two, then uh, we might have to do a different one. Uh, uh, Ryan from the podcast, I think. <laughs> yeah. 1998, Saving Private Ryan. Oh, fucking, I don't know. John Voight. No. 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 Is it, it, give us a clue. Is it someone who's like famous for Paul Verhoeven films? No, no, it's nothing like nothing that. Nothing like that? No. Okay. But, um, in Private Ryan and then the next film I'm going to give you, he, he plays very, very significant parts. Uh-huh. So it's not Tom Hanks then? It's not, it's not on us. If, if, that, if that's your official guess, so that one. <laughs> no. okay. so, did you and, say uh, significant so you, or insignificant? He plays a very significant part in, in Private Ryan and in the next one I'm going to give you. Which is why I was hoping that you should get it off these last two. Right, okay. And then uh, 2001, Black Hawk Down. Steve. Matt Damon. Both of them. Who was Steve? Yeah. No, hang on. <laughs> Owen Wilson wasn't in Saving Private Ryan. So why have I thought Who? of that? He was in Black Hawk Down, though, wasn't he? Who? Owen Wilson. No, that was another film, wasn't it? Yeah, you are about behind enemy lines, I think. Yeah. Same thing. Oh, I don't know. I can't even remember. A clue that might help you with the last two. The guy we're talking about plays a very similar role in both of those films. Not the main guy, but close to the main guy. I think I know who it is, and I don't know the actor's name. Like last week, he was in. He was. Was he in the last series or two of Lost as well? Don't know. I've never watched Lost. No, you're not missing out. <laughs> Not based on the last two series, anyway. Um, I'm stumped on this one. <laughs> Will you accept the character name? <laughs> no, you can't really. That's a bit unfair. I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna know his name. I could think for a million years, and I wouldn't be able to guess his name. You got a character name. Yeah, but I can't have the point for that. Are there more films that we can guess from, or is it, are they just, well, like, majorly obscure? Yeah, if you go any further forward or back than those, then it's getting truly into the realms of obscurity. Right. Um, he has done some TV work, if that helps, quite a bit, actually. Uh, let me just have a look at what some of the stuff he's been on TV in the last few years. CSI Miami... Um, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Mm. Why you fight though? Oh my god. Yeah, I'm gonna let Steve have a go at guessing the character's name then. This is gonna be. This is this. This seems quite like I should know it because he's been in a lot of films I've seen. Well, but... well I think that it's. But another thought just come into my head of who it could be, because he's done quite a lot of TV work as well. Prior okay. to that, I was thinking it was the guy who played the translator 
in Saving Private Ryan who's plays a character called Upham, I think, who's the one who's really rubbish and doesn't <sighs> really kind of want to do anything or kill anyone or, or do any war stuff until yeah, right the near pacifist the end. Guy. Yeah, that's the word, pacifist. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's not him. And the only other person I could think of wasn't wasn't Giovanni Rabisi. Wasn't he in Saving Private Ryan? He got yeah, shot quite. He, he was in it, but he's not the guy we're after. And then he's done quite a lot of TV as well. But obviously, it's not him. So I give up. Because well, I tell, Woody Harrelson it's, it's, in is with him. No, it's not. It's not Vin no. Diesel. It's not Vin Diesel, is it? Because he was in Saving Private Ryan very briefly. Uh, it's not him. And I can't no. think of any of the other actors in that film. Who would play any kind uh, of? You know, it was obviously the troop of them that went to find um, Ryan. Yeah, he's in the main the main gang. So he's not uh, he's not Vin Diesel. He's not Tom Hanks. He's not Giovanni Ribisi. He's not Upham. And then there was I'm not going to get the points for this. I can't. But there was the 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 Jewish guy who got stabbed in pretty gruesomely. And then there was the other one guy who survived. And then there was the, like the kind of fatter guy who was like second in charge to Tom Hanks. So it's got to be one of those three. Yeah, it was the the fatter guy, Tom Size. <laughs> Tom Size, more conveniently enough. Who we're looking for? I'm going to have to IMDb who that is because uh, I'll probably recognise him as soon as it. You will. Yeah, okay. I know him by face. I didn't know his name. Yeah, I would never uh, have guessed that. I would never have gotten there. Uh, by me. So I think we call that one a draw. <laughs> does that mean I win then? Or does nobody get any points? Well, no, it's first to three, yeah. isn't it? So how, how do... No, yeah, it's, it's a, no one gets any points. How yeah, can anyone get... How, how did anyone get points if no one got the answer the question right? Well, it's a draw, isn't it? Yeah. You get a point each in football if no one wins. Yeah, but this isn't football, is it? Yeah. There's, no point, there's no point if you're only playing against each other, though. No. <laughs> yeah, I guess. No. Oh, no. Sorry about that, gents. I thought that would be hard at first, but you get it at the end, so I'm sorry about that. No, I didn't know his name. Honestly, I never even thought to look up his name before. I must have seen him a hundred times in different things, but... He had a bit of a prolific run towards like the late 90s, early 2000s, where he was playing a lot of military what, roles, essentially was he, was he, playing the same character over and over again. Uh, was right. he in a British film that involved football somehow? Not sure. Mm. No, I don't even remember him in Heat, actually, thinking about it. Do, do, you, do you know off the top of your head who he played in Heat? Let's just look it up, shall I? He played Michael Michael Chiretto. Chiretto. Anyway, no. Wow. Well, well done, Matt. You've stopped us. I think that's the first time we've been unable to guess it. Eventually. Hmm. So I'll I'll take a point for that one. Just so Matt can take one again in the future. So um, unlucky gents. Yeah. You have to resume your duel next week. There we go. Fifteen minutes, and we've only just done the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of it is just going. Uh, who? What? Yeah. Anyway, uh, on to the news. Then two big bits of um, film news this week. The first of which is the announcement of a Justice League film, which will follow the 2016 Superman versus Batman film. Um, 
looks set to include all the the central characters from um the Justice League comics and cartoons of Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, etc., etc., as well as Batman and Superman. What do we think of this? Inevitable. Uh, they've I they've think. already got Wonder Woman uh, featuring in Batman versus Superman. Um, so, and I think as recently they've been talking about casting Cyborg for. The Batman versus Superman film. Yes. Or Man of Steel two or whatever it will be called eventually. Yes, apparently um, he will he will cameo in that and there's been all sorts of other rumours about the Flash turning up in, in Batman versus Superman and possible links with um Green Arrow from the actual T V show, which is actually very successful at the moment. Um but it's all a lot of that's just rumours at the moment. It just seems to me that they're trying to do or all what the Marvel have done with Avengers without doing any of the, the legwork that they've done with the Avengers. Yeah. It's I hard to get excited about it when it's so many years away as well. It's yeah. It's one thing having um, Batman vs Superman lined up and getting everyone jumping a bit for that one, but this is so far away. And if they don't get the first one right, no one's going to give a shit about the second mm. one. I mean, it's, least, it's too far away for my liking. But with with, with Avengers, they had such a build up. They had two Iron Man films. I suppose we can go far back as the, second, the the Hulk film with Edward Norton. Even that was meant to be part of it, even though he didn't come back. And then you had you know Captain America and Thor and everything just tight, you know building up to it. Whereas this is just like, yeah, well we done Man of Steel, wasn't that good? We're gonna do another one. Then we're gonna do Batman vs Superman. And there you go. We're not even gonna introduce the other characters properly. Just they are. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it feels a little bit like um, riding on the coattails of Marvel. I like DC Comics, or I used to like DC Comics. I like most of their films that they've put out, you know, even stuff like Green Lantern. I try to look for the, the positives in it. But, the, the yeah, it feels a little bit like they've gone, right, Marvel have now warmed everyone up to the idea of this, you know, collaborative franchise-type film where you've got superheroes in different films and then bringing them all together. Um and they're just trying to piggyback on, on that, on the success of that. And it's like, I kind of understand why, because financially it's it's going to make a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, whether it's a critical success or not, it's not exactly going to be like John Carter well, of Mars. Well, if, if, if the next Superman film and if Batman vs Superman are terrible, then people, and you know, and Marvel keep doing great things, in the run-up to Avengers 3 or through Phase 3, you know, in the second Avengers film, then no one's really going to, you know, everyone's going to be like, why, you know, why? Yeah, but it's, it's not going to be like um, the Superman films, is it? It's not going to be like um, they get to Superman 3 and go, actually, we'll just cut the budget a little bit and you can make these adjustments here. We haven't got this cast member or that cast member coming back. It's, it's going to be, a lot of money is going to be pumped into it. If, you know, Man of Steel, I still, I still quite like Man of Steel. Uh, and I don't think it was universally as patterned. I like the first two thirds of it, and then until Superman started killing yeah. everyone, then it was a bit. Exactly. Then it went downhill, which is, you know, a, a fair criticism, I think. Man of Steel 2 is going to do really well, regardless, because it has Batman in it. You know, it's that's just a selling point anyway. People will go and turn up and watch that. Um, and then in a Justice League film, people will still go and watch it just because. It's a Justice League film. So I don't think they've got to worry about, oh, well, is it is it going to be any good or not? Because 
ultimately they're gonna make a profit. You know, that's I mean I'm, that's something very cynical, and that's like oh they're not actually gonna put any thought into it. They are. I mean it's it's I think it's fair for us to criticise them for saying you know making all these announcements so far in advance, and perhaps it will kill any momentum because it'll be just dragging on for so long. But at the same time, they are doing a lot of preparation for it well in advance. So you'd hope that um, they're giving themselves plenty of time to, to well, prepare for it properly. Mm. I don't know. I, um, I think it'll be okay, but I'm not sure it'll be great. I'm still not convinced on Ben Affleck either as Batman. Mm, well, the other bit of major news coming out of the world of film is... Owen can switch off for a minute because he hates Star Wars. Is the cast announcement for Star Wars Episode Seven, um, which has all the the main um, the main character uh, the main characters from the from the original trilogy returning. So Mark Hamill is back, uh, Harrison Ford is back, Carrie Fisher is back, and so are the people who originally played uh, Chewbacca, C three PO, R two D two. Then um, a couple of other kind of big-ish names attached to it, Andy Serkis and Max Vod Sidow. But then the, the other three names are relatively smaller, not in, I wouldn't say unknown, but kind of not big names. There's John Boyega, who was in Attack the Block, probably most famously. Um, Oscar Isaac, who was in Inside Llewellyn Days. Oh, yeah. Inside Llewellyn Days. And Daisy Ridley, who I've not really heard of before. And couldn't even find a Wikipedia page for us, so <laughs> that was my research done. Um, but quite exciting that we've now got, um, you know, a, a cast for this film, even though we don't know who about half of these will be playing. Matt, without fear of like reprisal, where do you stand on Star Wars? I'm I'm very much neutral on Star Wars. I enjoy them, but I'm not fanatical about them in any way whatsoever. So I'm in a more unique position to uh-huh. to sort of judge on the up and coming movies that, that Disney are planning. And I can't say I'm massively excited about it, but I'll go into it with a with an open mind. I like the fact that they're they're bringing back some of the older cast, but uh, and apparently obviously um... heavily. Investing in uh, some new talent, which it will be good to get the new franchise off to its own fresh start and a fresh identity for newer, younger viewers. So it's encouraging, and it'll be interesting to see what direction it's taking. No, no, Billy D. Williams as of yet, anyway. No, no, uh, Lando. So space is looking pretty white once again. <laughs> yeah. Well. What happened to I can't remember what happened to Samuel L. Jackson in the previous. Well, he he did he did get he did get killed. Although Samuel L. Jackson did say we never actually saw his body. I could come back. So uh, yeah. okay. Um, as long as we get a poor lightsaber in there, one yeah. way or the other. It, it just looks like we're only allowed one black person per trilogy, and John Boyega's <laughs> got the role in this one. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. just, I don't well. think we should cast any. Um, Spurgeon's about uh, no. It's just I'm just going with it. Just going with uh, a joke here. But, yeah, it's, it's, it does seem strange that everyone else is back, even Kelly Baker, who played R2D2, who you don't really need because he didn't do a voice or anything. You know, you don't really need him. Really? But you haven't got Lando back. You know, not even for a, a little bit. So uh, C3PO is going to be a bit hunched over, a bit 
bit wider around the middle. Mm. Um, yeah. And a lot of people are predicting that on uh, May the 4th, which is what some sad people term Star Wars Day, not me, obviously, but what some we'll be getting we'll be getting another kind of big announcement about it then, possibly who these new actors attached to it will be playing. So then, what we've been watching, uh, where we look at the films that we have watched over the last week or so, uh, Matt is going to kick us off. Yep, so in anticipation of today's Corridor Craze, I've just been touching up on some uh, Paul Verhoeven movies, uh, just to get reacquainted with them before we have a little chat about that later on. So uh, over the weekend, I watched uh, 1995's classic, Showgirls, which um, I know Owen absolutely adores that movie. Uh, Oh yeah, it's my favourite. A huge distance, it's so much better than Robocop. No, oh, it's not. I fucking hate it. You're going insane. Yes, I am being sarcastic. It's yeah, just so, utter, uh, utter bollocks. Yeah. So just to touch up on, on Showgirls, uh, it stars uh, Saved by the Bell actress Elizabeth Berkeley as a, uh, a drifter who makes her way to Las Vegas in search of fame and fortune and ends up becoming a stripper, then gets into the world of the Las Vegas Showgirl. And... The film primarily focuses on her struggle to sort of weave behind her sort of murky past. And no matter how hard she tries to avoid using her looks or her body to get ahead in life, it ultimately always ends up coming back down to that. And it's the only reason people are actually interested in her. Um, The film was a, a cataclysmic bomb at the box office when it was first released. However, it became reportedly one of MGM's most successful ever home releases <laughs> and making them many, many millions um, from probably adolescent young men pre-internet era getting their kicks due to the amount of eroticism involved in the movie. Um, it's largely panned, but if you go into it and take it none too seriously, I do find it quite entertaining in respect that it's one of those films that is so outrageously bad that it is weirdly amusing and entertaining at the same time um and then after that i've got on my uh, sky hd recorded box starship troopers from uh, i believe it's 1997 which is the uh, robert heinlein book remade by paul verhoeven which is the story of uh, future whereby the, the human race is uh, at war with a an, an inset race on another planet. Um, I mean, you've seen this one. I'm taking you've seen this as well, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. It's great it's fun. What, it's what he does best, isn't it, Paul Verhoeven? I think this, the sci-fi films he's made are, are the things that he's the most, you know, naturally gifted at, at converting into very intelligent and entertaining films. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, the cast of, of Starship Troopers is somewhat wooden for the most part, but um, the um, the observations it makes on, on the sort of political landscape of the world it finds itself in is extremely interesting and it certainly has enough sort of popcorn violence in there to satisfy even the most casual cinema viewer, I think. So it sort of achieves well on all levels. And I remember seeing it as a, as a teenager 
back in the day, and uh, it's actually one of the very first films I ever bought on DVD. I went out and bought a DVD player with three brand new movies, every one of which was Starship Troopers, so it's got a very fond spot on my DVD collection, so it's always a nice one to go back to, and um, a lot like the classic 80s action movies, it's one wherever you see it on like, late night on TV, it's one of those ones you're always tempted to try and watch again because it will provide entertainment if you watch it for just a little bit, or if you're able to sit through it to the end as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a hearty recommendation for me. Do you know one of the things I really like about um, Starship Troopers is it's the way that it handles um, feminism. Because, you know, in the previous couple of films he made, he, Paul Verhoeven got a bit of stick for that. Um, but, you know, the, the sexist or misogynistic way perhaps it treated some of its female some of his female actresses and characters. Um, but in Starship Troopers, I think, is it the opening scene where they're all in the shower, uh, in the changing rooms? And it's just that actually they're not men and women, they're just soldiers and everyone's the same. And I think that was a really sort of subtle and very clever way for him to try to address um, some of the criticisms he's received. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of female empowerment in that mm. movie. Oddly enough, it's actually the, the female we played um, by uh, Dina Mayer, who's also in one of the Saw movies, I think it's Saw 2. Um, she plays the character Dizzy, who's um, part of the love triangle that the movie focuses around. And she's a very sort of robust, tough female lead. Yeah. And that which arguably is even more heroic than Johnny Rico's, the, the film's major... Uh, storytelling role um, so yeah it's definitely a different twist for Verhoeven although he, he does have a history generally speaking of, of creating very powerful female characters occasionally in some of the films he'd done before then they were a little old fashioned misogynistic views as you, as you said so yeah it's an interesting twist on that one mm. what do you think of Starship Troopers Steve? Uh, it's, it's good fun um, it, it's, it's you know like you said it's got some interesting and kind of of brave well not so much brave but you know interesting messages it's trying to put across as well but it's it's certainly it's certainly a fun film as well if you don't want to kind of pay any attention to that kind of thing you just want to watch a fun sci-fi film with people blowing up aliens (laughs) insects and yeah brilliant yeah Big giant bugs full of what can only be described as the guns from Pat Sharp's funhouse inside them. They just explode <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that's an excellent analogy. I like that. But one of the things that, that gets me about um, Starship Troopers is a couple of elements that I think particularly appeals to a lot of male viewers of the film. It's, it's very much split in half. You have the, the sort of coming of age first half of the movie where the, the protagonists are all at high school and entering into boot camp, and there's the love interest there as well. And then you have the actual war elements, and they get to the inset planet later in the movie. And I couldn't help but draw parallels between that and something, uh, although it handles it on a much less serious level, something like Full Metal Jacket, which starts off with uh, half the movie in the boot camp and then half the movie in a war scenario. And I think it appeals to a lot of male viewers because I think deep down people think that they can handle those situations really well, i.e. Uh, <laughs> think they can, they can be disciplined enough to handle boot camp and thrive in that environment. 
um, the boot camp scene in Full Metal Jacket is particularly renowned and popular amongst uh, fans of the movie. And then you have the war element, which I think everyone fancies having a go at uh, endless hordes and brainless uh, insects, as long as you've got the, the firepower to do so. A little bit like in zombie movies. I think everyone likes the idea as long as they have the right weapons, they wouldn't mind having a go at them. So I think that's, that's something that appeals to, to certain viewers of the film as well. Yeah. But like Steve says, I think ultimately it has got this great message, but it's it's just a really entertaining, fun, kind of epic sci-fi action film, isn't it? You know, you've got Space Marines, you've got uh, a character called Johnny Rico, for crying out loud, he's the lead character's name, is just the perfect fit for a film like Starship Troopers, and it's just really, really fun. Mm. Yeah, and it is a, a decent adaptation of the, uh, of, the, of the book. It's not 100% true to, uh, to the source material, but relevant enough to keep fans of the book interested in it. And uh, I do believe at some point in the future it is going to get remade into a like-for-like um, remake of the actual book in its in its proper form, but yeah, I, think I guess we'll people... we'll come on to remakes when we do the um... yes, we certainly will. I think later, yeah. Um, yes, uh, Owen, what have you seen then? I had a week off work, so since um, Thursday, whatever it was, seventeenth of April, I watched twenty-seven films. I watched a lot of films on my week off. I didn't go on holiday. I had a week at home just pissing about, doing whatever I felt like, and most of the time I felt like watching a film. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I watched quite a lot, and some of them were really good. I watched about eight John Wayne films. I'd say two were really good. Um, three was three were okay, and the rest weren't very good. But then I also watched a lot of um, horror films. I watched some Nightmare on Elm Street films, and I finally finished off the Saw franchise which has taken me years to get through. Um, I quite liked the first Saw film. I thought it was... I wasn't really looking forward to it when I went into it. Um, I kind of expected it to just be torture porn. Then it had quite a clever um, motto to it, I think. It was a little bit different to what I expected, and it was quite tense, and it was was really um, gruesome as well. Uh, Then I watched the sequel, and the sequel, I thought, was a bit gimmicky, a bit naff. And then Saw 3 was, wasn't great. I wasn't very impressed with Saw 3. So I had a huge kind of hiatus from the Saw series. I didn't, didn't return to it until, until this week. And the first one that I watched uh, was Saw 4, which I've actually got uh, sitting on my shelf. I've got an extreme limited edition DVD with like a weird Saw cardboard thing in the cover. And it's all very fancy and it's just been sitting there for ages. And uh, it was really bad. Saw 4 was the worst fucking film in the franchise and one of the worst I saw in the whole of those 27 films that I watched. Um, I know you said you've probably seen Saw 4, Steve, and I think, Matt, you, you're a big fan of the franchise anyway. Would you? Yeah, I, I haven't managed to catch the, the last couple that came out, but okay. I, I, I really enjoyed the original four. You like the first four? Okay, it's interesting. I think Saw 4, they sort of changed... Um, was it that they changed director? I think it ca- carried on with the same director from Saw 3. Well, I just found it just really... It was naff, and the story was just going nowhere. Um, it wasn't scary. I kind of lost it, it, its message a little bit, and I just thought it was just a really cheap, 
shit, badly acted, uninteresting horror film. Um, so you see, I think I think the problem that you might encounter there is that if you watch all of them back to back, you become so desensitised to the the brutality of yeah. them that it, it's almost water off the duck's back. But right. if you were to see them like every couple of years in cinema, and you're watching it with a, a an audience who's quite squeamish, it's so entertaining. Yeah. It's really, really good to watch. Well, like, well, like I said, I, I hadn't seen the first three for a couple of years. It must have been 2012 when I last watched a Saw film. Um, so this was me watching Saw 4 for the, the first time. That was the first one I watched in the rest of the franchise. So I kind of then thought, well, I'll give Saw 5 a chance. If Saw 5 is really bad, then I'll just forget it. I just won't, I'll, I'll just leave it again for another few years until I kind of get the itch to watch them. Um, but I found it... I sent Saw 5 was more enjoyable than 4 for me. 4 was, like I said, it, apart from the fact I've got this lingering memory of it being really bad, most of it, uh, the specifics of it, were entirely forgettable. Um, and I think Saw 5 brought a new director, which it needed, some new ideas. Um, although it did seem... Um, it didn't seem like the, a lot of it had changed uh, thematically, you know. But although it, it kind of kept the, the characters going, and at this point it feels like, okay, the, the series as a whole is now going somewhere. Saw 1, the first film, is very good as a standalone film. In fact, I think I've seen Saw about two or three times, and each time I've kind of found something different in it. Uh, I don't suspect I'll get that from the rest of the series. I think they do just go into gimmick mode, but Saw 5, I, yeah, I thought it was better than 4, uh, and it's probably the best one after Saw, I think, um, although a lot of the characters in it are very dense, and the decisions they make are very stupid, um, and the whole film itself kind of feels like it wants to be, um, you know, Fincher's 7, uh, it wants to be, it wants to mimic that style, it wants to be uh, this thriller uh, the psychological thriller sort of film, rather than perhaps the horror films that the previous ones have, have aimed for. But it kind of, it didn't feel as, as clever as that at any point. Um, it wasn't as uh, subtle either. It was a bit bit mockbustery, if you like. It's like someone's trying to make Seven with a really limited budget and no idea how to write good characters. Do you think it becomes a, a sort of victim of its own success and becomes more gradually watered down the more sequels they made, say, similar to something like Paranormal Activity, where the original is so well-liked and is is so fresh when it first came out and it just becomes more and more watered down every time they do a sequel to it. And it it's just not a unique experience like the original yeah, it's, it's interesting because you've, you've got films that were uh, coming out around the same sort of time, like the Final Destination films, for example. And they are pretty much the exact same formula for every film. You have stupid, idiot teenagers and they just get murdered and killed and, you know, in various different ways. But it's ultimately the same thing repeated. Um, that is still quite a fun series. And if you just accept it as, okay, all I know from what I'm getting from Final Destination is 
a bunch of gruesome and creative, imaginative death scenes. And it doesn't matter about the bits in between, all the sentimental American romance that has to be shoehorned into every single film. It doesn't, it doesn't matter about any of that. It's, all you're getting is uh, some... What you pay for, you get the good death scenes. Um, Do you not think Saw triumphs more over those other ones, though, in the fact that it has the morality issue? You know, the uh, jigsaw isn't just um, sporadically murdering people. He's doing it under a moral fiber, even though if it's a twisted one at that. Yeah, I find I mean, that quite compelling. Yeah, he. Well, I don't know if it's compelling. I didn't. Well, it might be compelling for the bit. I didn't find it particularly compelling. He's, I find him quite hypocrite, you know. He's trying to say, oh yeah, I didn't kill these people, uh, they killed themselves, but, you know, honestly, you've put them into the situation where that's possible. It's, it's anyway. Hey, I'm going off on a tangent. No, I don't think that that was um, particularly compelling for me until I saw six. And then I thought, thought, actually, you know what, the message in Saw six is quite an admirable message. Um, I think it, the, the the crux of that film is they want to have a go backward health insurance system they have in America. Um, and, you know, how it's just absurd that there's no government-supported um, health system. There's no national health uh, equivalent. It's It might be a bit heavy-handed. Um, you know, he goes out of his way to put an insurance broker into, <laughs> into these different death traps. Um, but at that, that point, I thought, okay, it's more than just you know you have to make the most of life, you know, as you as you find it. It's it became then about right. There, there is a there is a hidden message that's been running throughout the rest of the series, and this is where they're actually tackling kind of a political issue, which was quite nice, and it it did give the film an extra quality that was perhaps a bit lacking or a bit more flimsy in in previous films. But the quality of Saw 6 was like a bad episode in a Saw TV series rather than an entry into a horror franchise. And I think that was what I found most disappointing about Saw 6. The, the only saving, the only other saving grace for Saw 6 going into Saw, Saw 7 or Saw 3D or Saw the final chapter, whatever it's actually called, um, was the fact that it, it actually it took some, some characters like Robin um, Bell, who's known as obviously Jigsaw, um, it made him into more of an anti-hero, whereas in the previous films you still feel like, it, okay, he is just, um, you know, twisted. He's a path really. He thinks he's doing it for, like Matt's already said, his twisted morality, but he's just killing people in various different ways. I actually got the anti-hero by as as the, the second one. I mean, the, the first one makes him more appear more psychopathic because I, I think at that stage they didn't know they were definitely going to have a sequel and it could have just ended quite nicely there. But then they really developed the character quite well. And yeah, I definitely got the anti-hero vibe as, as soon as the, the original sequel. Mm. Maybe it's just my liberal leanings then we feel like yeah he's tackling this monstrous health system they have in america so yeah well more more power to him i guess in a way without me seeming like a hypocrite now but anyway so source seven was the uh it's the final chapter in the series and it was a bit of a letdown it's called source 3d and that kind of gives you an idea about what to expect really um it went 
way too into trying to have all these flashy, showy images, which, you know, we've complained about it on films like Captain America in the past, um, where 3D is just pointless. It looks even worse when you're watching it on a TV 2D screen and all you get is things flying out at you and you're like, this, this same thing over and over again. And they kind of missed um, an opportunity. Quite early on, they uh, introduced um, a lot of the different characters who've been in the previous films. So I was expecting it to go down a route where it now, okay, it's kind of realised it's the final film. Instead of taking itself very seriously, it's going to have one last hurrah and throw all these other people who've survived different um, traps in the past and put them back into a, a situation again, which would be slightly hypocritical, uh, admittedly. But no, it doesn't. It doesn't do that. It just has a new story, which is itself is quite weak. And also, the problem you have now in um, the final chapter in the Saw film, Tobin Hooper's not in it anymore. Or Tobin Hooper. Tobin Bell isn't in it anymore. He's um, a voice that appears, and I think he might one or two flashback scenes, but his character's not the um, antagonist anymore. So I'm not going to talk about who, what happens in case there's anyone who's not seen any of the, the films yet. Um, and that that kind of impacts on the film. Um, yeah, basically, I didn't really enjoy Saw 7 very much. And uh, what I've learned from these, these films is Saw 5 is decent, Saw 6 has a decent message, the franchise as a whole, it was one of the weaker horror franchises for me. Okay. Um, so, something that gets progressively worse as you go along, basically. Yeah, definitely. Um, the first film, like I say, is stand, pretty much standalone. You can watch that one without needing to watch the rest of the franchise. Um, but there's no point watching films from three onwards. Uh, order because they are very they do go in a sort of very chronological sequence so um, mm. yeah if you watch Saw 1 you don't have to watch the rest if you watch the rest then there's only going to be one or two films in there that are going to be worth it okay um, finally then for what we've been watching um, is a kind of new release review because <clears throat> this, this documentary is out in cinemas in the UK next week. Um, I went to see it a, about three weeks ago at press screening. It is Next Goal Wins about um, the American Samoan national football team. First of all, I've got to say thanks to the director or co-director, Steve Jameson, who who sorted out um, me going to see the documentary for both us and Porn Offside and, and everyone else who's been in contact and you know, Steve, who's done an interview with us as well, which will be on the site um, soon. <clears throat> um, so, yes, in in football folklore, American Samoa are, are an unlikely team to be kind of etched in it. But they are because they are the holders of the worst international defeat ever, which is 31-0 to Australia in a World Cup qualifier, um, which... It was in 2001, and yes, it's pretty, you know, it's very embarrassing um, if, you, if you're on the end of that kind of scoreline, uh, and, it, and it definitely holds some kind of of, of weight within the, the national, with their national sporting consciousness. What you have to remember, though, is before Australia moved um, to the Asian football 
confederation to kind of help themselves become more competitive because they were playing against teams like American Samoa and teams of similar ilk and size. That you know, it, so you know, before they moved to the Asian um, confederation, they were dominant. They were extremely dominant in the oceanic football region. Um, so what's really more telling about the standard of this um, <coughs> American Samoan national team is the fact they were kind of losing to, to nations like Vanuatu and the Cook Islands by seven or eight goals. And I think that probably gives you a, a, more, a, a better indication of just how bad they were at football. <coughs> and, and speaking to the director or the co-director Steve, it was directed by Steve Jameson and Mike Brett. I've, I've mo- well, I've only been speaking to Steve really. But, um, previous um, documentary TV crews have had trouble um, getting permission to to film the team because most people just wanted to to make light of them or make a joke of them. Um, and this isn't what this documentary is about. So they managed to get full access to the team, and they took them through this kind of first, took them through this first qualifying phase, um, where they were losing heavily to like Vanuatu and the Cook Islands and teams like that, really small nations. They were losing heavily. At the time, they were bottom of FIFA's world rankings. Um, I don't think they'd won a game. They'd barely even scored a goal at international level, which is pretty, pretty embarrassing. Um, I know there's going to be some non-football fans listening to this, but this documentary does kind of transcend football. Um, and then, and they didn't know this when they went to make the documentary, but because it's American Samoa, they've got some kind of link with America. I'm not sure the whole political process, but, but they, they've got some kind of link with the United States. So they asked the United States for help. They sent out a coach to them called Thomas Rondren, who is um, he's Dutch. He came through the Ajax Academy. Um, didn't really play much for them, but had a kind of prolific career in, in American football. And he came out for about a month, I think, to to coach them, get them into shape and, and trying to get them to, to put in a respectable performance at the kind of opening stages of the Oceanic um, World Cup qualification. Uh, I'm not going to say too much more about the actual outline of the documentary because it'll give it away. Um, and you know, you can, I suppose people can look up American Samoa's results if they want to. It's not going to be particularly difficult to find out online the results of international football World Cup qualifiers. And uh, the, the main thing about this documentary, which, which makes it so good and makes it kind of transcend football and the characters in the documentary, um, you know, there's, there's four kind, uh, three or four kind of, of main ones. Um, we'll start with, with the goalkeeper, Nicky. He is, um, the goalkeeper from the 31 nil defeat to Australia. And he just seems like a glutton for punishment because he keeps returning. He just, he won't, you know, he won't leave the team. He, this, this defeat seems to have an effect on him, a profound effect on him that he just can't, he can't shake it. It kind of seems to weigh heavily on him. And he just wants to kind of exercise those demons and, and, and get a win or, um, you know, perform well, get some kind of respectable result. Um, there's even a joke in the film, which is, which is perhaps serious, that he sometimes just, you know, play against the computer, you know, against Australia to try and see if he could win on, on the Xbox or the PlayStation. <laughs> um, but, um, his, and the, the coach Thomas himself, uh, he comes over with his wife, really gets into the culture, really gets into involved with the team. 
they are. You know, he he said he, in the documentary, this is the kind of worst standard of football I've ever seen. There's a clip in the beginning where you see players dribbling in and out of cones, and genuinely, I thought I can do better than that. You know, and that's not me being arrogant. They were that bad. And um, but you know, he comes over with his wife, really adapts to the. He really adapts to the culture, you know, after an initial kind of shock of how bad the team are. He knows what he's got to do. He, he gets the team on board and, and he really works well with them. Um, and, you know, he also brings in some, some players from America who have got uh, Samoan heritage, American Samoan heritage um, to, to play because they come from a high standard. But they also <coughs> integrate into the team really well, which is, which is important. Um the most important character and probably the most interesting character is is Jaya, who is the first transgender um, person to play in a in a FIFA World Cup qualifier or any kind of FIFA uh, recognised international match. Um, <clears throat> and you know, in in, in American Samoa, um, transgender people they've they've you know. It's more accepted. They've actually got a kind of name for it, and it's, it's like a third gender in in their culture, and it, it's wide, it's more widely accepted, and it might be in certain other cultures. <clears throat> um, but you know, she she's integrated into the team, you know, really well. Just accepted as a normal person, normal part of the team, um, which is something that she she's admitted in interviews. There's some fantastic interviews with her online, actually, which were well worth reading. Um, but you know she's admitted herself at, at the university she's at in Hawaii. She tried out for the men's team, and, and and you know the coach just couldn't get on board with the whole idea of her being a you know playing men's football, but not thinking of herself as a man. The coach just couldn't get his head around it, and, and basically she didn't play because she felt kind of outcast. Um, and the, and well, she she you know she's one of the more the more committed players. She's she's very dedicated to the team. And, and initially, she wasn't going to play in one of the qualifiers. Thomas the coach said, "Well, I'm going to bring her along in the squad because everyone loves having her around. She's fantastic." Yeah. You know. And then in the end, he decides to put her put her in the team for the game. And it's quite funny to watch because she's obviously very feminine the way she runs, all her mannerisms. And then she's putting in really hard tackles and just absolutely smashing through people. It just I shouldn't say it, but it, doesn't, it just doesn't look right. It looks quite comical, but you know, she's she's an integral part of the team and. And with yeah, like Boris Johnson's tackle on the German guy, <laughs> kind <laughs> of, yes. <yeah. laughs> um, but you know, it, it's quite refreshing to see that somebody, obviously, being being gay and being transgender, two completely different things. But whereas in Western football or you know top level football, professional football, we haven't got any gay players. We have certain players coming out after they've retired, like Thomas Hitzelsberger recently. Um, there are no current, currently no out gay professional players, and it's just quite refreshing to see that somebody who is different is is accepted into this team. And you just think, why can't um, all football be kind of more open and like that? You know, it doesn't really make any sense why it's not. It's also got quite a good contrast because this is obviously the the lowest standard of football you're going to see on the international stage, and you compare that with what's going to happen this summer at the World Cup, where it's all multi-millionaires, you know, Wayne Rooney on £300,000 a week playing in the biggest stadiums that have used kind of cheap labour and, and people have died making stadiums. Such an interesting contrast to the two of those. Um, and I've said before, I've got to wrap this up now because we're getting pushed for time, um, but I've said before, it kind of it's about more than football. Football is obviously the central thing to the film. 
um, to the documentary. It, it's, the, it's why they made a documentary, but it's, it's more about hope and ambition and, you know, togetherness, spirit, desire, and, and just kind of what it is to kind of be a person who wants to achieve, succeed, overcome kind of past problems, like Nicky, the goalkeeper, being part of the 31-0 defeat. It, it really is about more than football. So if you don't like football, go and see this because it's about more than football. Um, so that's about all I've got to say for that at the moment. We will have an interview on the website. Um, both of these will be on Fail Critics and Born Offside. I'll have an interview with the co-director, Steve Jameson, and we'll have a written review um, of, of um, the documentary as well. It is out... Um, Sorry, it's out <coughs> nationwide previews from the 7th of May and uh, general release on, from the 9th of May in selected cinemas. That's Next Goal Wins. Uh, definitely worth a watch. And that's all for what we've been watching. And up next is our induction into the Corridor of Praise of Paul Verhoeven. Yes, for the final part of uh, this week's podcast, we will be inducting Paul Verhoeven into our corridor of praise, joining the likes of Stanley Kubrick, Harrison Ford, Studio Ghibli, and um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, Matt, over to you with uh, our look at Paul Verhoeven's career. Sure, okay. I think um, Paul Verhoeven got a, a nomination into the um, Corridor of Praise based off me nagging James continually about it when he was asking for, for suggestions as to who to induct. Um, he probably is my favourite director. He makes, um, only tends to make the kind of film that I like to watch, which is gritty adult cinema, uh, 18 rated, no bullshit type movies. Um, so about the man himself, he was born in 1938 in the Netherlands, the son of a school teacher and a hat maker. He happened to grow up uh, near a German um, Second World War military installation which was housing uh, V1 and V2 rocket launchers, which uh, led to quite a dangerous upbringing, as you can imagine. Um, he was constantly exposed to raids by Allied forces, whereby his, his neighbourhood was uh, continually bombed and destroyed. And he and his family went through, routinely went through um, hunger due to food sources in the country at the time, as all the food in the air in the region was getting sent to the German front. Um, so a lot of people were dying of starvation, or at least very malnourished. Um, in interviews that he's done regarding this period of his life, it actually makes it out to be quite an exciting time uh, for childhood, rather than a fearful one, which might reflect upon the type of films that he makes later in life uh, that seem to be lacking the kind of fear that other filmmakers might have on certain themes that he tends to touch upon. Um, he first found interest in film after the war. His father became a school teacher and would sometimes bring home the school's film projector, and they would mostly watch Dutch movies. But he was fascinated by Hollywood and cites um, 1953's War of the Worlds as an inspiration for stuff he does later in life. In the late 50s, he moved on to university, earning a master's degree in mathematics and physics. But rather than pursuing these subjects further, he delved into his film hobby, 
Uh, he began making short films, including a documentary called Head Corps Mariners, about the Royal Dutch Marine Corps, whom he served with in the 1960s. This brought him critical acclaim, winning the French Golden Sun Award for military films. Upon leaving the Navy in 1967, he took his newly found skills to the television arena, making a TV series called Floris, where he stumbled onto a young and talented actor named Rutger Hauer, <laughs> who you guys all know from Blade Runner and various other movies that came after that. The two would continue to work together as they broke into Dutch cinema with 1973's Turkish Delight, which is reportedly the most successful movie in Dutch cinema history, with uh, 27% of the entire Dutch population having seen the film and was nominated that year for the best foreign language film at the Oscars, although it didn't win. Um, Although he didn't win, his stock was on the rise. He went on to make several more epics of Dutch cinema, uh, notably Soldier of Orange, Spetters, and The Fourth Man. Uh, and then he joined his compatriot, Rutger Hauer, in the United States, where he proceeded to make a string of R-rated mega-hits, um, which we'll be no doubt discussing in further detail. So, Owen, I think, um, touching on his Dutch career, I know that you've seen uh, Soldier of Orange, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, Soldier of Orange, it's, um, it was the most expensive Dutch film ever made, I think, at the time. Um, it's about, uh, also stars Rupert Harris, as you mentioned, um, as he lives through the Nazis' occupation of the Netherlands, so it's obviously quite a personal um, story. Um, I kind of, I, when I watched it, it was one of these, I was really impressed by it. Uh, there's absolutely loads in there to be impressed with technically, the way that the characters um, all seem to cope with, with trying to get to uh, Britain during World War II, um, these Dutch citizens. And, but it, there's just something that was missing for me to, to try and grab me, to try and make me um, understand why it was so... Revered, but at the same time, it is it is recognisably uh, Verhoeven in the sense it doesn't shy shy away from anything. It wants to tell you straight exactly what's on Paul Verhoeven's mind, what he thinks as a person, as a director um, about this story. And from that, um, it was it's obvious that he you can see exactly the kind of director he would go on to be uh, if perhaps swapping Nazis for I don't know corporations and stuff like that you know but it's it's yeah it's very Paul Verhoeven if a little bit toned down compared to some of the uh, as we've mentioned the 18 rated sci-fi films he'd he'd later make yeah um I I get the impression that um as he's on the rise in his career that would certainly be one of the the earliest films he makes and probably hasn't quite reached point of um, violent creativity that he becomes known for further mm. down the line by that point, although as you say, because he's had first-hand experience of adolescence during the war, and the effect that it's had on his country, it's going to be an extremely personal account of what it was like to, to live under occupation um, during the Second World War, particularly from the Nazi regime, so yeah, that's definitely one of my list that, that I want to watch as, as a Verhoeven fan that I haven't gotten round to yet. Um, 
So does that get a, a yay or nay from you generally, Owen? Oh yeah, it's a it's a good film. Um, it's a yes. I you know I definitely recommend it. Um, it's just uh, yeah. It, th- there's not a lot of humour in it, but the humour that is there is kind of the same sort of thing that you know disguises a lot of the dark and depressing stuff that he sometimes tackles in his films. So it's definitely worth watching if you're um, if you're a fan of Verhoeven, as you should be, as every sensible person should be. Um, but you've not seen it yet, and I think it's actually available on Amazon Prime Instant Video or whatever they call it. So, you've got no excuses if you've got a Prime account. <laughs> Definitely want to check out the free trial. Eh? Yes. Cool. Okay, so um, moving on from there, um, I quite recently watched uh, 1980s Spetters, which is a film that he made prior to his launch into Hollywood, which is a, a coming-of-age film, which is somewhat considered to be a Dutch equivalent to Saturday Night Fever. Um, whereby the, the story follows three friends who are up-and-coming motocross enthusiasts, and they all fall in love with the, with the same girl, played by Renny Soudendijk, who's a, uh, a stalwart of, of some of Paul Verhoeven's earlier movies. And she appears again in The, the Fourth Man, which we'll discuss a little bit further down the line. Um, but this film, uh, they're all dreaming about escapism from their mundane life in a small Dutch town. Um, it's Rutger Howard's last film in Home before he starred in Blade Runner just a couple of years later, and it also launched uh, several Dutch stars into Hollywood um, notoriety, namely Jerome Crabbe, who was also in The Fourth Man and later appears in um, The Fugitive as, as the, the main character in that movie, but I think he's also in uh, Soldier of Orange as well, although I'm not sure on the role he plays in that one. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, story, and, it, and it's kind of one of those that has art mim- mimicking life somewhat, in which um, it's a particularly grim tale for one of the film stars, uh, Hans on Tongeren, whose uh, character in the film, named uh, Rien, is paralysed in a, a motorbike accident, and then his character later goes on to commit a quite grisly suicide in the movie where he drives his uh, car into moving traffic, which is quite grim. Uh, unfortunately, the, the character—sorry, the actor who plays the, the ring character—also commits suicide just two years after this movie. Reputedly, he was struggling to separate his in-film characters from his real life. Uh, so, yeah, quite a sad demise uh, in that respect. Um, but the film—it's it's a mixed bag of, of highlights of young love and success and, and human tragedy, all, all blended into a short story. You have the excitement and the triumph in, in, in the race scenes as they follow their motocross career. Uh, and then you also have the standard Paul Verhoeven, full frontal nudity type things, which he never fails to shy away from, especially in the form of a quite an amusing scene at the beginning of the film, whereby the, the three maleys are comparing dick size as to who should go after <laughs> the particular hottie who's selling hot dogs at their, their racetrack. Um, which adds quite a, a nice bit of comedic te- uh, lightning of the tone there. Um, also features a, a pretty cool uh, disco dance-off scene set to the music of Bondi's Heart of Glass. But then you throw that in with some of the darker aspects, which the Hogan film's always going to look into, which is the motorcycle accident, which I just spoke about, and the subsequent suicide. And it also contains 
uh, a homosexual gang rape scene, which makes the one in American History X, for those who have seen it, look very PG in comparison. So, again, it's it's very much Noah Hall's bar classic, the home and stuff. Um, the film itself, upon release, led to a number of protests regarding the manner in which the home portrayed uh, homosexuals, Christians, the police, and the press as manipulative and sordid and was supposedly one of the main reasons why Verhoeven, apart from the money, of course, decided to up sticks and move to the US to, to pursue a greater creative freedom in, in that respect. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting film. Uh, it's one that I wouldn't necessarily put it amongst his very best, but considering that he was a young up-and-coming director at the time, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. And you can certainly see early signs of the director that he would later uh, go on to be from that film. Cool. So are we on to his better films there? I say better, you know, these are ones I consider my personal favourite Verhoeven films. Yeah, we, we, yeah. We'll, we'll probably move on to, to the Hollywood stuff because this is all, all the stuff that we're, we're all most familiar with. Um, so we have... To start with, is 1987's Robocop. Yes, excellent. Uh, His best film, uh, in my opinion. I take it we've all seen this one. Yeah. 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 So Robocop, set in a crime-ridden dystopian Detroit city in the near future. Film centers around Officer Alex Murphy, who's brutally gunned down by a criminal cartel, but brought back to life as the cyborg Robocop by the Omni Consumer Products Group, or OCP, as uh, referred to in the film. Um, I think it's fair to say, and we would perhaps agree, that this is Verhoeven's uh, best film. Yeah, certainly one of his most popular. Um, interestingly enough, when uh, he was handed the script for, for Robocop, initially he threw it away in complete disgust. He, he thought it was a, a silly premise. And it was only when his wife uh, decided to have the bin and have a read through it herself that she was able to um, persuade him to take another look at it and the plot had more substance than the, the title of the movie it suggested. And then eventually Verhoeven signed on to the project and were quite lucky for her intervention on, on that one, I think. Mm. Yeah, um, I, mean, I, I, like, I was just going to chip in there and just quickly say that um, I think hopefully part of what he recognised was that there's, there's a lot of satire to Robocop. And I think that oh, yes. we've talked about in, you know, Starship Troopers already. That's the kind of thing he can blend satire and absolute brilliant sci-fi action together. Like, very few other directors can manage. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, it's got a good degree of, of, of action in there as well, but the obvious commentary it makes on, on American culture and satire is very smoothly sort of hidden alongside the, the ultra-violence that goes into the movie as well, so you don't have one sort of dominating theme throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there wouldn't have been many directors around at the time who would probably try to tackle uh, a, a movie in the way that Verhoeven did. Um, Steve, what are your thoughts on Robocop? Um it's, it's, you know, another one, um, like we kind of discussed with Starship Troopers earlier, it's another kind of good action film that you can take as just a good action film, but as also, as you kind of mentioned with his wife reading the script, it's got a bit more depth to it as well. If you want a film with a bit 
more depth and he's kind of you know it's at his peak that was the kind of films he was making was was a film that you could take at face value as just an action film where stuff got blown up and people got killed and you know it was quite fun that way but there was also a bit more to it if you wanted some a film with a bit more to it yeah, it's also got really good characters in it as well, um, as Owen touched upon when we were discussing Starship Troopers at the beginning. Um, again, it puts in quite a, a strong female character in the form of Lewis, who is Murphy's uh, partner in the film. And she certainly doesn't play any form of Amazon distress type sidekick in this movie. She's very much a, a, a powerhouse in her own respect, but the, the Murphy character as he goes from a uh, loving, doting father and uncorruptible police officer to being this unstoppable force of, of justice, um, but whose soul is ultimately locked within this machine. Um, and it has this ongoing inner turmoil constantly as he's battling against the prime directors that OCP have, have programmed him with, makes it extremely interesting, uh, aside from how cool the action itself is. And, like any good action movie, it has to have some good one-liners and, and Robocop's pretty much jam-packed with quite a few of them. If you think about um, some of the corny one-liners that, it, that it's able to reel off. Uh, um, from the scenes like the, the shot through the, the woman's dress, which uh, gets the, the bad guy in the, like the delicate area, which is just superbly done. But there's um, a lot of visual flair to it as well, isn't there? You know, lots of... Um style and the, the design of Robocop, the design of this dystopian, well, it's kind of dystopian future. Um, everything just looks like a brilliant, it, it is, it, I mean, it's an, the embodiment, I've said it before on the podcast, it's the embodiment of the 80s and it absolutely is self-aware and it's exactly what kind of time it's living in with all the commercialism and the, um, the excesses of the 80s, what it's kind of known for. Um, and it just embraces it and then starts to poke fun at itself, which it just makes the whole thing really entertaining. Um, it adds a bit of humour to it. And, yeah, as you sort of said, the kids are great, and each character kind of represents something else. So, you know, uh, Murphy is kind of like just a, 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 an honest person, and he's battling with himself against his own humanity, and what does that mean? And that's another bit which is adding satire on top of what is already a very clever satire about the 80s, and... Um, I, yeah, I like I said, I personally think it's his best, but I know other people have another favourite of his, which um, I kind of understand, and I'm not too fussed about, but to, uh, do you mind me moving straight on to this map of Total Recall, I think? No, no, go for it. I, yeah. We can all enjoy talking about Total Recall. Total Recall is the, the other one that some people often refer to as his as their favourite Verhoeven film, um, which I totally understand, because it's one of... Schwarzenegger's best films, isn't it? If we're honest. Yeah, and and just touching on that, I was re-listening to the Schwarzenegger uh, corridor plays we did, and Steve, you, I think you said the Total Recall was your favourite Arnie film, so I'm sure you've got a lot of love for for this one. Yeah, it's certainly better than the, the recent remake. <laughs> yeah, I think um, we all agreed on that. Yeah, no, you know, another another really good kind of sci-fi action film. Um, it's been a while since I've seen the original, but yeah, um, just good, good fun, and kind of I think it was an eighteen, wasn't it? 
I'd be very surprised if it wasn't. But, you know, just yeah, I think, I think I think there's a cut of it that is 15, but it's definitely an 18. Yeah, just another another 18 rated film that does what an 18 rated film should do, and you know, another argument is why we don't have so many today making action films desensitised so they can show it to the biggest audience possible. But anyway, you know, um. Yeah, another good, fun sci-fi action film. Yeah, and it was reportedly one of the most expensive films ever made at the time that it came out, although it's it's debatable whether it was actually the very most expensive one made at the time, because I think um, Die Hard 2 came out the same year and was slightly more expensive, but it was certainly up there at the time, which for... It's unthinkable to uh, to think nowadays an 18 or, or even a 15 rated coming out that would have so much um, big budget behind it is it, almost impossible to imagine. Yeah, so it's quite a landmark in that respect. And another one that has great special effects as well. It shows that he's you know he's gone from making the very um, uh, important, personally important um, films in Holland to making massive sci-fi films with, you know, doing visual effects that other directors hadn't done at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And Arnold Schwarzenegger's almost preposterous way of, of performance, the grandiose nature that he brings to the screen, just adds to Quaid Cat much more. It's, mm-hmm. it's such a, a super sci-fi action movie. Um, and there's not people seen Recall who, who dislike it. And, um, yeah, it still starts up a, an interesting relationship between the director and one of his, his cast being uh, Sharon Stone, who obviously appears as one of the stars in his next movie, which is 92's Basic Instinct, which yeah. has, has a very, very special place in my heart. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I saw a hairy-handed adolescent-type memory of mine. Uh, pre, pre-internet era, basically, has a very special place in my heart. But in, in itself, it's one of the, the most iconic erotic thrillers ever made. Um, it's the story of the police detective, played by uh, Michael Douglas, who's investigating the brutal murder of a wealthy rock star, during which in the investigation he becomes involved in a very torrid and erotically intense relationship with the prime suspect played by Sharon Stone and of course is extremely famous for that particular scene whereby she's uncrossing her legs and has the whole thing uh, which is probably by the by these days but at the time it have been pretty eye-opening to, to say the least it's a yeah. pretty cool scene it was um it got into a bit of trouble for this film didn't it um because it was deemed as a bit misogynistic, and um, but I, I kind of, I kind of, I think, that, I think the, the gay community had a very difficult time in the way he portrayed, um, yes, gay women or bisexuality in general, um, almost alluding to the fact that they might all be psychotic in some sort of way, uh, or certainly they're they're all uh, out to get people. <laughs> Which is, is pretty ridiculous, but um, yeah, I think he gets in trouble from Bush. Yes, that's true. But I think Basic Instinct was, was one of the big ones that caused a lot of controversy. I think I can appreciate what he was trying to do. Um, you know, he's trying to change 
taste thrillers were seen, you know, uh, try and add a bit of um, edge to them, making them really aggressive, making them, they have to be sexy, and it's all, the, the blah, blah, blah. I just think it was um, a bit of a shit thriller, to be honest. I can appreciate what he was trying to do whilst at the same time thinking he didn't quite achieve it. Uh, it's just the, sec- the second half of the film is really boring, in my opinion. Um, but it's not quite as boring or as bad as Shogun, which I think was the film that Philo <laughs> followed this directly. Uh, yeah, it came a couple of years later, but yeah, it's, it's the next film uh, he sort of did in his Hollywood lineup. And I've, I've seen this quite a few times. I've managed to watch it a couple of times early recently. And it's hard to. To, to stick up for showgirls because I do enjoy it, but I, I know from a critical point of view that it's it's not brilliant. And <laughs> generally speaking, it's mostly to do with performance and uh, Elizabeth Berkeley, who's just so over dramatic in the, the movie. It's it's absolutely unbelievable. Uh, she she eats dramatically, she talks dramatically, she fucks dramatically. The whole thing is it, just so over the top. It kind of adds to the psychosis of the character in, 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 in an interesting way, uh, and it makes her a more sort of believable, um, psychotic, in a way, if you want to look at her that way. She's a very broken character, and as we touched upon right at the beginning of the pod, um, the whole premise of the movie is that she uses her sexuality to, to get ahead in life, but it's the, it's the one thing she doesn't want to do. But it seems to be the, the only the one thing that she has. And I read an interesting um, quote from Tarantino on the movie earlier on this afternoon. I was doing some research for the pod. And um, he says it's one of the best exploitation movies ever made. And that Paul Verhoeven was the only director around at the time who would have the guts to make it. Which, <laughs> for me as a fan of, of both directors and, and two directors who focus purely on adult theme movies, I think is, is a, a great tribute to the man himself. And I can watch Overalls without feeling guilty about it whatsoever. Um, obviously, the, the erotic content in, in the film is appealing from a, a male perspective, and hopefully it is for, for women as well. Um, but I think it does find a niche for people who do have these uh, guilty pleasures in their collection, whereby the film can be, on paper, be so bad yet they can still find enjoyment for themselves out of it. And I think Showgirl sort of fits into that category for me. And like most Verhoeven movies, it actually has a really good score. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to find, but the soundtrack to the movie is very good. Well, yeah, maybe that can be the only positive that... that I mean, yeah, it's great. I think the, the Tarantino quote is, is brilliant. It, it's, it's true. It's really a director who at the time... Um, particularly, could get away with making a film like that. Uh, although, yeah. you know, it's arguable how much he got away with making it since it made most of its profits, as you said, when you did the review from home video release and people just sort of bought it. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been massive on, yeah. on the home market, which seems to be the way we've commented on this on the show before, whereby uh, certain adult-related movies are coming out, stuff like Dread, mm. and perhaps the, the Raid and the Raid 2 will follow suit, whereby their box office return isn't so great, but people will get a hold of it when it hits the home market, and 
uh, people will make money from it that way, whether yeah. it's enough to warrant more sequels and, and more investment in 15 or 18 rated movies is, is another thing. But um, yeah. it, 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 he's only ever going to make a film one way and he certainly isn't going to allow anyone to edit it down so it can make money if it loses the content of the film itself. So that always gets a bit yeah. fun from me. Exactly. You, you know, you've got to respect him for that. But at the same time... Uh, Two hours and twenty minutes, or whatever it was, for Showgirls was way too long. I, I don't even think it was it achieved what he set out to achieve with it. Um, like I said, a lot of respect for him trying something different. Uh, I think he said that basically he wanted to make like um, an old MGM style musical, but instead of like having musical scenes in it, he just had strippers and fucking and all the other stuff that's in Showgirls, which is odd. It's an odd combination. Um, and even if he's trying to, you know, I think he said they interviewed like 200 strippers and dancers before uh, in Vegas to try and get an idea of the real lives that these people have um, in the scenes. So it, it kind of showgirls is going to be like um, an expose on the exploitation of these people in Vegas. It's not, is it? It's just a really melodramatic, badly um, scripted. <laughs> 18-rated, showy-offy shit film. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I mean, yeah. we're going to have to agree to disagree. From, agree a technical, to... from a technical point of view, I agree with everything you said, yeah. but I still find it entertaining for some reason. So what I, I find, find amazing is people like Showgirls more than they like Hollow Man. Well, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a different kettle of fish altogether, isn't it? But, yeah. Um, again, um, I think we've We've touched upon Starship Troopers already, which would come in next. Yeah, and we kind of want need to kind of start bringing this to a close now. So let's, this, uh, this with post Starship Troopers, I suppose, um, kind of being in a slight decline, maybe um, wrap up the rest yeah. of his career quite quickly. Well, the only film he's kind of had a real. Um claim for since uh, like Starship Troopers was um, the uh, the Black Book, which was released not too long ago. I don't think was it two thousand six. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty recent, and that's a, a Dutch uh, movie as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. So he's gone back to to Netherlands and he's made um, Black Book, and it's been really successfully received. It's another is it a war drama again about Nazis in Netherlands? Yeah, um, and it's. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I really do want to see it. And it's another one I think is available on um, Amazon Instant Video. Uh, but, you know, universal praise for that. It's, it was nominated for a BAFTA, I think. So it's, you know, it, I don't think it's had any film nominated for the main Oscar. Uh, or even a Golden Globe. But, you know, you have to buy your way into a Golden Globe, don't you? But the, the Black, I think Black Book's the only one he's had nominated for any kind of major award. Is that right? He had um, um, oh, which one was it? One of these early Dutch films that was nominated for best foreign oh, best language. Foreign, best foreign language, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was uh, Soldier of Orange. It was no. one of the. Um, but uh, yeah, he got no, one nomination, didn't win it. He's won various uh, awards around the world at various other film festivals, but yeah, he seems to get a. I think his films are too niche for the Academy, let's just say that. Yeah. 
it's incredible, really, isn't it? That a director like Paul Verhoeven can go his entire life without being nominated for an Oscar. Well, it's the same with Kubrick, uh, which you guys covered in, in excellent detail, how arguably the greatest director of all time and just got almost no recognition whatsoever from the Academy, even if he was considered by everyone else to be the man, so to speak. But it just goes to show what a, a, a political uh, scene it is in terms of Academy Awards and how they're sort of dealt out to people. That's right. But I guess he doesn't have to worry now, does he, Paul Verhoeven, because he's made it into our corridor of praise. So, yeah, so that's, that's all the recognition he needs. That's exactly. right. Their losses are gain, and, and we will make praise where, where it is due. And uh, just a, an aside to all the great films that we've covered there, he still continued to be linked to the up-and-coming Schwarzenegger, Conan the Barbarian sequel, which, for me, uh, having Verhoeven and Arnie, who's one of my biggest heroes, the two came together for that project, that would be something to behold. I would get extremely excited about that. So fingers crossed that that still uh, reaches fruition at some point. Okay, so welcome, Paul Verhoeven, to the Failed Critics Corridor of Praise. Insert round of applause sound effect here. <laughs> so um, just to, to, to finish that off, guys, what is your favourite Verhoeven film, Steve, if you want to start off? I reckon it's Total Recall. Okay, good choice. Yeah, mine's Robocop, as I said. Uh, although I haven't got a problem with people picking Total Recall. They're both good films. Just Robocop edges it for me. Yeah, can't go wrong. Um, I, would, I would have to say Robocop. It's, it's a, it's a, a genre-defining type movie. It's not there with the very best action films of the 80s, so... Yeah, we'll go for Robocop. Okay, and very, 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 very quickly before we finish for tonight, recommendations for uh, next week or so. I'm going for Sunday, uh, ITV4, 10 o'clock. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At night is the documentary Senna about uh, the Formula One driver Arten Senna. Owen? Uh, okay, yeah, I am going to pick a film which is on Film 4, which we've we've recommended quite a lot, but it's always worth a watch. Um, it's obviously, uh, well, it's not obvious, but District 9 um, is on Film 4 on today. At ten fucking prawns. Yeah, fucking prawns. It's on at ten fifty-five p.m. Uh, Matt, yeah, that's a great choice. Um, I've got two. If you don't mind me pimping out one to keep it relevant to what we've just been discussing, but Base Instinct is on Friday night on Sky Thriller at ten forty. Give it a watch. And uh, for a non-Verhoeven recommendation, go for House of Flying Daggers, which is on Film Four at eleven twenty-five this Sunday, starring Andy Lau of the Infernal Affairs trilogy and Yi Zhang of Crouching Tiger and Hero. If we're gonna, excellent martial arts movie. If we're going to do two, can I just quickly, very quickly, before we wrap up, recommend Blackfish, the documentary, which both James and I um, 
were massively impressed by and angered by, which is on BBC4 at 9pm, uh, also on Saturday. Okay, yeah, so that's all for this week's Fail Critters podcast. Um, thanks to everyone who has listened and for everyone who's contributed anyway, especially to the to Steve Jameson and the whole team at Next Goal Wins, uh, out on the 7th pre- uh, advanced previews and out on general release 9th of May. Um, check out their website and their Facebook page and their Twitter page to find out more. And we'll be back roughly the same time next week with more Failed Critics. James, if you're listening back to this, if you want to go back and edit out anything you might consider to be racism, then fine. <laughs> I don't I don't think anything was too bad, but you know, you're the boss. He won't, he won't edit anything anyway. I doubt he's even listening to this bit, this bit will probably stay in. <laughs> so, um, so same year, ninety four, we got natural born killers. Bloody hell. I definitely should know this, shouldn't I? Fucking I think we both did. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, we're starting to get to the good stuff now. So, 95, Heat. Uh, Val Kilmer. No. Uh, Any takers, Steve? No, not yet. Still, still in thought. Uh, Right, okay. The next two are the clinchers, so uh, if you don't yeah. get it from these two, then we might have to do a different one. Uh, 1998, Saving Private Ryan. Oh, fucking, I don't know. John Voight. No. No. Is it, it's, give us a clue. Is it someone who's like famous for Paul Verhoeven films? No, no, it's nothing. Significant or insignificant? He plays a very significant part in, in Private Ryan and in the next one I'm going to give you. Which is why I was hoping that you should get it off these last two. Right, okay. And then uh, 2001, Black Hawk Down. Steve. Matt Damon. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh... Both of them. Steve. Yeah. No, hang on. <laughs> Owen Wilson wasn't in Saving Private Ryan. So why have I thought Who? of that? He was in Black Hawk Down, though, wasn't he? Who? Owen Wilson. No, that was another film, wasn't it? Yeah, you are like, behind enemy lines, I think. Yeah. Same oh, thing. name like last week he was in he was was he in the last series or two of lost as well don't know i've never watched lost no, you're not missing out 
<laughs> not based on the last two series anyway um I'm stumped on this one <laughs> will you accept the character name <laughs> no you can't really that's, that's a bit unfair no, I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna know his name. I could think for a million years, and I wouldn't be able to guess his name. You got a character name. Yeah, but I can't have the point for that. Is there more films that we can guess from, or is it, are they just well, like majorly obscure? Yeah, if you go any further forward or back than those, then it's getting truly into the realms of obscurity. Right. Um, he has done some TV work, if that helps, quite a bit, actually. Uh, let me just have a look at what some of the stuff he's been on TV in the last few years. CSI Miami, um, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Hawaii mm. Five-0, oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to let Steve have a go at guessing the character's name then. This is going to be, this is this this seems quite like I should know it because he's been in a lot of films I've seen. Well, but. well I think that it's, but another thought just come into my head of who it could be because he's done quite a lot of TV work as well. But prior okay. to that, I was thinking it was the guy who played the translator in Saving Private Ryan, who's plays a character called Upham, I think, who's the one who's really rubbish and doesn't really kind of want to do anything or kill anyone or, or do any war stuff until yeah, right the near the end. Yeah, pacifist guy. Yeah, that's the word, pacifist. Yes, it's not, it's not him. And the only other person <laughs> I could think of wasn't wasn't Giovanni Rabisi. Wasn't he in? Saving Private Ryan. He got yeah, shot quite. He, he was in it, but he's not the guy we're after. And then he's done quite a lot of TV as well. But obviously, it's not him. So yeah, I give up. Because I tell. Would he have in his with him? No, it's not. It's not Vin Diesel. It's not Vin Diesel, is it? Because he was in Saving Private Ryan very briefly. Uh, it's not him. And I can't no. think of any of the other actors in that film who would play any kind uh. of. You know, it was obviously the troop of them that went to find. Um, Ryan. Yeah, he's he's in the main the main gang. So he's not uh, he's not Vin Diesel, he's not Tom Hanks, he's not Giovanni Rabisi, he's not Upham, and then there was I'm not going to get the points for this, I can't. But there was the 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 Jewish guy who got stabbed in pretty gruesomely, and then there was the other one guy who survived, and then there was the, like the kind of fatter guy who was like second in charge to Tom Hanks. So it's got to be one of those three. Yeah, it was the the fatter guy, Tom Size. <laughs> Tom Size, more conveniently enough. Who we're looking for? I'm going to have to IMDb. That is because uh, I'll probably recognise him as soon as it. You will. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know him by face. I didn't know his name. Yeah, I would never uh, have guessed that. I would never have gotten there. Uh, by me. So I think we call that one a draw. Does that mean I win then, or does nobody get any points? Well, no, it's first to three, like isn't it? So how how do no? Yeah, it's it's a no one gets any points. How yeah, can anyone get how, how can anyone get points if no one got the answer the question right? Well, it's a draw, isn't it? You yeah. get a point each in football if no one wins. <laughs> yeah, but this isn't football, is it? Yeah. There's, no <laughs> point, there's no point if you're only playing against each other. Though. No. <laughs> yeah, I guess. 
No. Oh, I'd be mad. Sorry about that, gents. I thought that would be hard at first, but you get it at the end, so I'm sorry about that. No, I didn't know his name. Honestly, I never even thought to look up his name before. I must have seen him a hundred times in different things, but... He had a bit of a prolific run towards like the late 90s, early 2000s, where he was playing a lot of military roles, essentially playing the same character over and over again. Um, Was he in a British film that involved football somehow? Not sure. Mm. No, I don't even remember him in Heat, actually, thinking about it. Do do you you know off the top of your head who he played in Heat? Let's just look it up, shall I? He played Michael, Michael Chiretto, anyway, no, wow, well, well done Matt, you've stumped us, I think that's the first time we've been unable to guess it, eventually. Mm. So I'll, I'll take a point for that one, just so Matt can take one again in the future. So, um, unlucky gents, yeah. you'll have to resume your duel next week. <laughs> there we go. F- Fifteen minutes, and we've only just done the quiz. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of it is just going. Uh, who? What? Yeah. Anyway, uh, on to the news. Okay. Then two big bits of um, film news this week. The first of which is the announcement of a Justice League film, which will follow the 2016 Superman vs. Batman film. Um, Looks set to include all the the central characters from um, the Justice League comics and cartoons of Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, etc., etc., as well as Batman and Superman. What do we think of this? Inevitable. They've they've already got Wonder Woman uh, featuring in Batman versus Superman. Um, So. And I think as recently they've been talking about casting Cyborg for the Batman versus Superman film. Yes. Or Man of Steel 2 or whatever it will be called eventually. Yes, apparently um, he will he will cameo in that. And there's been all sorts of other rumours about the Flash turning up in, in Batman versus Superman and possible links with um, Green Arrow from the actual TV show, which is actually very successful at the moment. Um, but it's all a lot of that's just rumours at the moment. It just seems to me that they're trying to do all all what the Marvel have done with Avengers without doing any of the, the legwork that they've done with the Avengers. Yeah. It's I hard to get excited about it when it's so many years away as well. It's yeah. It's one thing having um, Batman vs Superman lined up and getting everyone jumping a bit for that one, but this is so far away. And if they don't get the first one right, no one's going to give a shit about the second mm. one. I mean, it's, least... it's too far away for my liking. But with with, with Avengers, they had such a build up. So they had two Iron Man films. I suppose you even go far back as the second, the, the Hulk film with Edward Norton. Even that's meant to be part of it even though he didn't come back, and then you had you know, Captain America and Thor and everything just tight, you know, building up to it, whereas this is just like, yeah, well, we've done Man of Steel, wasn't that good, we're going to do another one, then we're going to do Batman vs Superman, and there you go, we're not even going to introduce the other characters properly, just, there you are. Yeah, I mean, it's, it feels a little bit like um, riding on the coattails of Marvel. I like DC Comics, or I used to like DC Comics. I like most of their films that they've put out, you know, even stuff like Green Lantern. I try to look for the, the positives in it. But the, the, yeah, it feels a little bit like they've gone, right, Marvel have now warmed everyone up to the idea of this, you know, 
collaborative franchise type film where you've got superheroes in different films and then bringing them all together. Um, and they're just trying to piggyback on, on that, on the success of that. And it's like, I kind of understand why, because financially it's, it's going to make a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, whether it's a critical success or not, it's not exactly going to be like John Carter. Well, Mars. if, 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 if the next Superman film and if Batman versus Superman are terrible, then people and you know and Marvel keep doing great things in the run up to Avengers three or through Phase three, you know, in the second Avengers film, then no one's really gonna, you know, everyone's gonna be, oh, why, you know. Why? Yeah, but it's it's not gonna be like um, the Superman films, is it? It's not gonna be like um, they get to Superman three and go, actually, we'll just cut the budget a little bit and you can make these adjustments here. We haven't got this cast member or that cast member coming back. It's it's gonna be a lot of money is gonna be pumped into it if. You know, Man of Steel. I still, I still quite like Man of Steel, uh, and I don't think it was universally as panned. I liked the as... first two thirds of it, and then until Superman started killing yeah. everyone, then it was a bit. Exactly. Then it went downhill, which is you know a, a fair criticism, I think. Man of Steel two is going to do really well, regardless, because it has Batman in it. You know, it's that's just a selling point anyway. People will go and turn up and watch that. Um, and then in a Justice League film, people will still go and watch it just because it's a Justice League film. So I don't think they've got to worry about, oh, well, is it is it going to be any good or not? Because ultimately, they're going to make profit. You know, that's I mean, I'm, that sounds very cynical. And that's like, oh, they're not actually going to put any thought into it. They are. I mean, it's, it's I think it's fair for us to criticise them for saying, you know, making all these announcements so far in advance and perhaps it will kill any momentum because it will be just dragging on for so long. But at the same time, they are doing a lot of preparation for it well in advance. So you'd hope that um, they're giving themselves plenty of time to, to well, prepare for it properly. Hmm. I don't know. I... Mm, I think it'll be okay, but I'm not sure it'll be great. I'm still not convinced on Ben Affleck either as Batman. Mm, well, the other bit of major news coming out of the world of film is... Owen can switch off for a minute because he hates Star Wars. Is the cast <laughs> announcement for Star Wars Episode Seven, um, which has all the the main... Um, the main character, uh, the main characters from the from the original trilogy returning. So Mark Hamill is back, uh, Harrison Ford is back, Carrie Fisher is back, and so are the people who originally played uh, Chewbacca, C three PO, R two D two. Then um, a couple of other kind of big ish names attached to it: Andy Serkis and Max von Sydow. But then the, the other three names are relatively smaller. Not you know, I wouldn't say unknown, but kind of not big names is John Boyega who was in Attack the Block probably most famously um, Oscar Isaac who was in Inside Llewellyn Days Inside Llewellyn Days and Daisy Ridley who I've not really heard of before and couldn't even find a Wikipedia page for her so (laughs) that was my research done Um, but quite exciting that we've now got um, you know a, a cast for this film even though we don't know who about half of these will be playing. Matt, without fear of like reprisal, where do you stand on Star Wars? 
I'm I'm very much neutral on Star Wars. I enjoy them, but I'm not fanatical about them in any way whatsoever. So I'm in a more unique position to to sort of judge on the up and coming movies that, that Disney are planning. And I can't say I'm massively excited about it, but I'll go into it with a with an open mind. I like the fact that they're they're bringing back some of the older cast, but and apparently um... heavily. Investing in uh, some new talent, which it will be good to get the new franchise off to its own fresh start mm, and, and have a fresh identity for newer, younger viewers. So it's encouraging, and it'll be interesting to see what directions it No, no Billy D. Williams as of yet, anyway. No, no uh, Lando. So space is looking pretty white once again. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> What happened to? I can't remember what happened to Samuel L. Jackson in the previous. Well, he he did he did get he did get killed. Although Samuel L. Jackson did say we never actually saw his body. I could come back. So uh, yeah. okay. Um, as long as we get a poor lightsaber in there, one yeah. way or the other. It, it just looks like we're only allowed one black person per trilogy, and John Boyega's <laughs> got the role in this one. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. just, I don't well. think we should cast any. Um, Spurgeon's about uh, no. It's just I'm just going with Disney, a, I'm just going with uh, a joke here. But, you know, it's, it, it does seem strange that everyone else is back, even Kelly Baker who played R2D2, who you don't really need because he didn't do a voice or anything. You know, you don't really need him. Really? But you haven't got Lando back. You know, not even for a, a little bit. So uh, C three PO is going to be a bit hunched over, a bit bit wider around the middle. Mm. Um, yeah, and a lot of people are predicting that on uh, May the 4th, which is what some sad people term Star Wars Day. Not me, obviously, but what some, we'll be getting, we'll be getting another kind of big announcement about it then, possibly who these new actors attached to it will be playing. So then, what we've been watching, uh, where we look at the films that we have watched over the last week or so, uh, Matt is going to kick us off. Yeah, so in anticipation of today's Corridor of Praise, I've just been touching up on some uh, Paul Verhoeven movies, uh, just to get reacquainted with them before we have a little chat about that later on. So uh, over the weekend, I watched uh, 1995's classic Showgirls, which um, I know Owen absolutely adores that movie. Uh, Oh yeah, it's my favourite. A huge distance, it's so much better than Robocop. No, it's not. I fucking hate it. You're going insane. Yes, I am being sarcastic. It's just utter bollocks. So just to touch up on on Showgirls, uh, it stars uh, Saved by the Bell actress Elizabeth Berkley as a uh, a drifter who makes her way to Las Vegas in search of fame and fortune and ends up becoming a stripper, then gets into the world of Las Vegas Showgirl. And... The film primarily focuses on her struggle to sort of weave behind her sort of murky past and no matter how hard she tries to avoid using her looks or her body to get ahead in life, it ultimately always ends up coming back down to that and it's the only reason people are actually interested in her. Um, The film was a, a cataclysmic bomb at the box office when it was first released, however it became reportedly one of MGM's most successful ever home releases <laughs> and making their many, many millions um, 
from probably adolescent young men pre-internet era getting their kicks due to the amount of eroticism involved in the movie. Um, it's largely panned, but if you go into it and take it non too seriously, I do find it quite entertaining in respect that it's one of those films that is so outrageously bad that it is weirdly amusing and entertaining at the same time. Um, and then after that, I've got on my uh, Sky HD recorded box Starship Troopers from, uh, I believe it's 1997, which is the uh, Robert Heinlein book remade by Paul Verhoeven, which is the story of uh, a future whereby the, the human race is uh, at war with a, an, an inset race on another planet. Um, I mean, you've seen this one. I'm taking you've seen this as well, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. It's great it's fun. What, it's what he does best, isn't it, Paul Verhoeven? I think this, the sci-fi films he's made are, are the things that he's the most, you know, naturally gifted at, at converting into very intelligent and entertaining films. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, the cast of, of Starship Troopers is somewhat wooden for the most part, but. Um, the um, the observations it makes on on the sort of political landscape of the world it finds itself in is extremely interesting, and it certainly has enough sort of popcorn violence in there to satisfy even the most casual cinema viewer, I think. So it sort of achieves well on all levels. And I remember seeing it as a, as a teenager back in the day, and uh, it's actually one of the very first films I ever bought on DVD. I went out and bought a DVD player with three brand new movies, only one of which was Starship Troopers, so it's got a very fond spot on my DVD collection, so it's always a nice one to go back to, and um, a lot like the classic 80s action movies, it's one wherever you see it on like, late night on TV, it's one of those ones you're always tempted to try and watch again. Because it will provide entertainment even if you watch it for just a little bit, or if you're able to sit through it to the end as well. So yeah, it's a it's a hearty recommendation for me. Do you know one of the things I really like about um, Starship Troopers is it's the way that it handles um, feminism. Because you know, in the previous couple of films he made, he Paul Verhoeven got a bit of stick for that. Um, but you know, the, the sexist or misogynistic way perhaps it treated some of its female some of his female actresses and characters. Um, in Starship Troopers, I think, is it the opening scene where they're all in the shower, uh, in the changing rooms? And it's just that actually they're not men and women, they're just soldiers and everyone's the same. And I think that was a really sort of subtle and very clever way for him to try to address um, some of the criticisms he's received. Yeah, there's a lot of female empowerment in that mm. movie, oddly enough. There's actually the, the female we played um, by uh, Dina Mayer, who's also in one of the Saw movies, I think it's Saw 2. Um, she plays the character Dizzy, who's um, a part of the love triangle that the movie focuses around, and she's a very sort of robust, tough female lead. Yeah. In that, which arguably is even more heroic than Johnny Rico's the uh, the film's major uh, storytelling role. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a different twist for Verhoeven, although he, he does have a history, generally speaking, of, of creating very powerful female characters. Occasionally, in some of the films he'd done before then, they were a little 
old-fashioned misogynistic views, as you, as you said. So, yeah, it's an interesting twist on that one. Mm. What do you think of Starship Troopers, Steve? Uh, it's it's good fun. Um, it, it's it's you know like you said, it's got some interesting and kind of brave, well not so much brave, but you know interesting messages it's trying to put across as well. But it's, it's certainly it's certainly a fun film as well if you don't want to kind of pay any attention to that kind of thing. You just want to watch a fun sci-fi film with people blowing up aliens <laughs> with insects, and yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Big giant bugs full of what can only be described as the guns from Pat Sharp's Funhouse inside them. They're just takes some glare and some glare Yeah. That's an excellent analogy. I like that. But one of the things that, that gets me about um, Starship Troopers is a couple of elements that I think particularly appeals to a lot of male viewers of the film. It's, it's very much split in half. You have the, the sort of coming of age first half of the movie where the, the protagonists are all at high school and entering into boot camp and there's the love interest there as well and then you have the actual war elements and they get to the inset planet later in the movie and I couldn't help but draw parallels between that and something uh, although it handles it on a much less serious level with something like Full Metal Jacket which starts off with uh, half the movie in the boot camp and then half the movie in a war scenario and I think it appeals to a lot of male viewers because I think deep down people think that they can handle those situations really well, i.e. Uh, <laughs> they, they can be disciplined enough to handle boot camp with thrive in that environment. Um, the boot camp scene in Full Metal Jacket is particularly renowned and popular amongst uh, fans of the movie. And then you have the war element, which... I think everyone fancies having a go at uh, endless hordes and brainless uh, insects as long as you've got the, the firepower to do so. A little bit like in zombie movies. I think everyone likes the idea as long as they have the right weapons, they wouldn't mind having a go at them. So I think that's that's something that appeals to, to certain viewers of the film as well. Yeah. But like Steve says, I think ultimately it has got this great message, but it's... It's just a really entertaining, fun, kind of epic sci-fi action film, isn't it? You know, you've got Space Marines, you've got uh, a character called Johnny Rico, for crying out loud, he's the lead character's name, he's just the perfect fit for a film like Starship Troopers, and it's just really, really fun. Mm. Yeah, and it is a, a decent adaptation of the, uh, of, the, of the book. It's not 100% true to uh, the source material, but relevant enough to keep fans of the book interested in it. And uh, I do believe at some point in the future it is going to get remade into a like-for-like um, remake of the actual book in its in its proper form. But yeah, I, think I guess we'll people... we'll come on to remakes when we do the. Um... Yes, we certainly will. I think later, yeah. Um, yes, uh, Owen. What have you seen then? I had a week off work. So since um, Thursday, whatever it was, 17th of April, I watched 27 films. I watched a lot of films on my week off. I didn't go on holiday. I had a week at home just pissing about, doing whatever I felt like, and most of the time I felt like watching a film. So, (laughs) um, yeah, so I watched quite a lot, and some of them were really good. I watched about eight John Wayne films. I'd say two were really good. Um, Three was 
three were okay and the rest weren't very good. But then I also watched a lot of um, horror films. I watched some Nightmare on Elm Street films and I finally finished off the Saw franchise, which has taken me years to get through. Um, I quite liked the first Saw film. I thought it was... I wasn't really looking forward to it when I went into it. Um, I kind of expected it to just be torture porn. Then it had quite a clever... um, motto to it I think it was a little bit different to what I expected and it was quite tense and it was, it was really um, gruesome as well uh, then I watched the sequel and the sequel I thought was a bit gimmicky a bit naff and then Saw 3 was wasn't great I wasn't very impressed with Saw 3 so I had a huge kind of hiatus from the Saw series I didn't didn't return to it until until this week and the first one that I watched uh, was Saw 4, which I've actually got uh, sitting on my shelf. I've got an extreme limited edition DVD with like a weird Saw cardboard thing in the cover. And it's all very fancy and it's just been sitting there for ages. And uh, it was really bad. Saw 4 was the worst fucking film in the franchise and one of the worst I saw in the whole of those 27 films that I watched. Um I know you said you've probably seen Saw 4, Steve, and I think, Matt, you, you're a big fan of the franchise anyway. Would you? Yeah, I, I haven't managed to catch the, the last couple that came out, but okay. I, I, I really enjoyed the original four. You like the first four? Okay, it's interesting. I think Saw 4, they sort of changed... Um, was it that, that they changed director? I think it ca- carried on with the same director from Saw 3. Well, I just found it just really... It was naff, and the story was just going nowhere. Um, it wasn't scary. I kind of lost it, it, its message a little bit, and I just thought it was just a really cheap, shit, badly acted, uninteresting horror film. Um, so you see, I think I think the problem that you might encounter there is that if you watch all of them back to back, you become so desensitised to the the brutality of yeah. them that it's almost water off the duck's back. But if you were to see them like every couple of years in cinema and you're watching it with an audience who's quite squeamish, it's so entertaining. It's really, really good to watch. Well, like like I said, I I hadn't seen the first three for a couple of years. It must have been 2012 when I last watched a Saw film. Um, so this was me watching Saw 4 for the, the first time. That was the first one I watched in the rest of the franchise. So I kind of then thought, well, I'll give Saw 5 a chance. If Saw 5 is really bad, then I'll just forget it. I'll just, I'll, I'll just leave it again for another few years until I kind of get the itch to watch them. Um, but I found it, I think Saw 5 was more enjoyable than 4 for me. 4 was, like I said, it, apart from the fact I've got this lingering memory of it being really bad, most of it, uh, the specifics to it were entirely forgettable. Um, and I think Saw 5 brought a new director, which it needed, some new ideas. Um, although it did seem... Um, it didn't seem like the, a lot of it had changed uh, thematically, you know. But although it, it kind of kept the, kept the characters going, and at this point it feels like, okay, the, the series as a whole is now going somewhere. Saw the first film is very good as a standalone film in fact I think I've seen Saw about two or three times and each time I've kind of found something different in it Uh, I don't suspect I'll get that from the rest of the series I think they do just go into gimmick mode but Saw 5 yeah I thought it was better than 4 and it's probably the best one after Saw I think Um, 
although a lot of the characters in it are very dense and the decisions they make are very stupid um, and the whole film itself kind of feels like it wants to be um, you know Fincher's seven uh, it wants to be it wants to mimic that style it wants to be uh, this thriller uh, the psychological thriller sort of film rather than perhaps the horror films that the previous ones have, have aimed for but it kind of it didn't feel as, as clever as that at any point um, it wasn't as uh, subtle either it was a bit bit mockbustery if you like it's like someone's trying to make seven with a really limited budget and no idea how to write good characters do you think it becomes a, a sort of victim of its own success and becomes more gradually watered down the more sequels they made say similar to something like paranormal activity where the original is so well liked and is is so fresh when it first came out and it just becomes more and more watered down every time they do a sequel to it and it, it's just not a unique experience like the original one yeah was. It's, it's interesting because you've, you've got films that were uh, coming around the same sort of time like the final destination films for example and they are pretty much the exact same formula for every film. You have stupid, idiot teenagers, and they just get murdered and killed, and you know, in various different ways. But it's ultimately the same thing repeated. Um, that is still quite a fun series, and if you just accept it as okay, all I know from what I'm getting from Final Destination is a bunch of gruesome and creative, imaginative death scenes. And it doesn't matter about the bits in between or the sentimental American romance that has to be shoehorned into every single film. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter about any of that. It's all you're getting is uh, some what you pay for. You get the good death scenes. Um, Do you not think Saw triumphs more over those other ones, though, in the fact that it has the morality issue? You know, the uh, jigsaw isn't just um, sporadically murdering people. He, he's doing it. situation where that's possible it's it's anyway i'm going off on a tangent no i don't think that that was um particularly compelling for me until i saw six and then i thought thought actually you know what the message in saw six is quite an admirable message um i think the the crux of that film is they want to have a go backward health insurance system they have in america um and you know how it's just absurd that there's no government-supported um, health system. There's no national health uh, equivalent. It's It might be a bit heavy-handed. Um, you know, he goes out of his way to put an insurance broker into <laughs> into these different death traps. Um, but at that point, I thought, okay, it's more than just, you know, you have to make the most of life, you know, as you, as you find it. It's, it became then about... Right, there, there is a there is a hidden message that's been running throughout the rest of the series, and this is where they're actually tackling kind of a political issue, which was quite nice, and it it did give the film 
an extra quality that was perhaps a bit lacking or a bit more flimsy in, in previous films. But the quality of Saw 6 was like a bad episode in a Saw TV series rather than an entry into a horror franchise. And I think that was what I found most disappointing about Saw 6. The, the only saving, the only other saving grace for Saw 6 going into Saw, Saw 7 or Saw 3D or Saw the final chapter, whatever it's actually called, um, was the fact that it, it actually it took some some characters like Robin um, Bell, who's known as obviously Jigsaw, um, it made him into more of an anti-hero, whereas in the previous films you still feel like, it, okay, he is just, um, you know, twisted, he's a psychopath really. He thinks he's doing it for, like Matt's already said, his twisted morality, but he's just killing people in various different ways. I actually got the anti-hero by as recent as the, the second one. I mean, the, the first one makes him more appear more psychopathic because I, I think at that stage they didn't know they were definitely going to have a sequel and it could have just ended quite nicely there. But then they really developed the character quite well. And yeah, I definitely got the anti-hero vibe as, as soon as the, the original sequel. Mm. Maybe it's just my liberal leanings then we feel like yeah he's tackling this monstrous health system they have in America so yeah well, more more power to him I guess in a way without me seeming like a hypocrite now but anyway so Saw 7 was the uh, it's the final chapter in the series and it was a bit of a letdown it's called Saw 3D and that kind of gives you an idea about what to expect really um it went way too into trying to have all these flashy, showy images, which, you know, we've complained about it on films like Captain America in the past, um, where 3D is just pointless. It looks even worse when you're watching it on a TV 2D screen and all you get is things flying out at you and you're like, this, this same thing over and over again. And they kind of missed um, an opportunity. Quite early on, they uh, introduced... Um, a lot of the different characters who've been in the previous films. So I was expecting it to go down a route where it now, okay, it's kind of realised it's the final film. Instead of taking itself very seriously, it's going to have one last hurrah and throw all these other people who survived different um, traps in the past and put them back into a, a situation again, which would be slightly hypocritical, uh, admittedly. But no, it doesn't. It doesn't do that. It just has a new story, which is itself is quite weak and also the problem you have now in um the final chapter in the saw film tobin hooper's not in it anymore or tobin hooper tobin bell isn't in it anymore he's um a voice that appears and i think he one or two flashback scenes but his character's not the um antagonist anymore so i'm not going to talk about who what happens in case there's anyone who's not seen any of the films yet um, and that that kind of impacts on the film um, yeah basically I didn't really enjoy Saw 7 very much and uh, what I've learned from these, these films is Saw 5 is decent Saw 6 has a decent message the franchise as a whole it was one of the weaker horror franchises for me okay um, so Something that gets progressively worse as you go along, basically. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
the first film, like I say, is stand, pretty much standalone. You could watch that one without needing to watch the rest of the franchise. Um, but there's no point watching films from three onwards uh, because they are very, they do go in a sort of very chronological sequence. So, um, mm. yeah. If you watch Saw 1, you don't have to watch the rest. If you watch the rest, then there's only going to be one or two films in there that are going to be worth it. Okay. Um, finally, then, for what we've been watching, um, is a kind of new release review, because <clears throat> this, this documentary is out in cinemas in the UK next week. Um, I went to see it a, about three weeks ago at press screening. It is Next Goal Wins, about um, the American Samoan national football team. First of all, I've got to say thanks to the director or co-director, Steve Jameson, who who sorted out um, me going to see the documentary for both us and Born Offside and, and everyone else who's been in contact and you know, Steve, who's done an interview with us as well, which will be on the site um, soon. <clears throat> um, so, yes, in in football folklore, American Samoa are, are an unlikely team to be kind of etched in it. But they are because they are the holders of the worst international defeat ever, which is 31-0 to Australia in a World Cup qualifier, um, which... Which was in two thousand and one, and yes, it's pretty, you know, it's very embarrassing um, if, you, if you're on the end of that kind of scoreline, uh, and, it, and it definitely holds some kind of of, of weight within the, the national with their national sporting consciousness. What you have to remember though is before Australia moved um, to the Asian Football Confederation to kind of help themselves become more competitive because they were playing against teams like American Samoa and teams of similar ilk and size that, you know, it, so, you know, before they moved to the Asian um, confederation, they were dominant. They were extremely dominant in the oceanic football region. Um, So what's really more telling about the standard of this um, American Samoa national team, is the fact they were kind of losing to, to nations like Vanuatu and the Cook Islands by seven or eight goals. And I think that probably gives you a, a more a, a better indication of just how bad they were at football. <clears throat> and, and speaking to the director or the co-director, Steve, it was directed by Steve Jameson and Mike Brett. I've, I've mo- well, I've only been speaking to Steve, really. But, um, previous um, documentary TV crews have had trouble um, getting permission to, to film the team because most people just wanted to, to make light of them or make a joke of them. Um, and this isn't what this documentary is about. So they managed to get full access to the team and they took them through this kind of first, took them through this first qualifying phase um, where they were losing heavily to like Vanuatu and the Cook Islands and teams like that, really small nations. They were losing heavily. At the time, they were bottom of FIFA's world rankings. Um, I don't think they'd won a game. They'd barely even scored a goal at international level, which is pretty, pretty embarrassing. Um, I know there's going to be some non-football fans listening to this, but this documentary does kind of transcend football. Um, and then, and they didn't know this when they went to make the documentary, but because it's American Samoa, they've got some kind of link with America. I'm not sure the whole political process, but they've got some kind of link with the United States. 
So he asked the United States for help. They sent out a coach to them called Thomas Rondren, who is um, he's Dutch. He came through the Ajax Academy, um, didn't really play much for them, but had a kind of prolific career in, in American football. And he came out for about a month, I think, to, to coach them, get them into shape and, and trying to get them to, to put in a respectable performance at the kind of opening stages of the Oceanic um, World Cup qualification. Uh, I'm not going to say too much more about the actual outline of the documentary because it'll give it away. Um, and, you know, you can, I suppose people can look up American Samoa's results if they want to. It's not going to be particularly difficult to find out online the results of international football World Cup qualifiers. Uh, the, the main thing about this documentary, which which makes it so good and makes it kind of transcend football and the characters in the documentary, um, you know, there's there's four kind, uh, three or four kind of, of main ones. Um, we'll start with with the goalkeeper Nicky. He is um, the goalkeeper from the 31 nil defeat to Australia, and he just seems like a glutton for punishment because he keeps returning. He just he won't you know he won't leave the team. He, this this defeat seems to have an effect on him, a profound effect on him that he just can't he can't shake it. It kind of seems to weigh heavily on him, and he just wants to kind of exercise those demons and and, and get a win or um, you know perform well, get some kind of respectable result. Um, there's even a joke in the film which is, which is perhaps serious that he sometimes just you know play against the computer, you know, against Australia to try and see if he could win on, on the Xbox or the PlayStation. <laughs> um, but um, and the coach, Thomas himself, uh, he comes over with his wife, really gets into the culture, really gets into involved with the team. They are, you know, he, he said in the documentary, this is the kind of worst standard of football I've ever seen. There's a clip in the beginning where you see players dribbling in and out of cones and, Genuinely, I thought I can do better than that. You know, and that's not me being arrogant. They were that bad. And um, but you know, he comes over with his wife, really adapts to the. So he really adapts to the culture. You know, after initial kind of shock of how bad the team are, he knows what he's got to do. He, he gets the team on board, and, and he really works well with them. Um, and you know, he also brings in some some players from America who have got uh, Samoan heritage, American Samoan heritage. Um, to, to play because they come from a high standard, but they also <coughs> integrate into the team really well, which is which is important. Um, the most important character and probably the most interesting character is is Jaya, who is the first transgender um, person to play in a in a FIFA World Cup qualifier or any kind of FIFA uh, recognised international match. Um, <clears throat> and you know, in 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 American Samoa, um, transgendered people, they've they've you know, it's more accepted. They've actually got a kind of name for it, and it's it's like a third gender in in their culture, and it, it's wide, it's more widely accepted, and it might be in certain other cultures. <clears throat> um, but you know, she she's integrated into the team, you know, really well. Just accepted as a normal person, normal part of the team. Um, which is something that she she's admitted in interviews. There's some fantastic interviews with her online, actually, which are well, well worth reading. Um, but, you know, she's admitted herself at, at the university she's at in Hawaii. She tried out for the men's team and, 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 you know, the coach just couldn't get on board with the whole idea of her being, a you know, playing men's football, but not thinking of herself as a man. 
the coaches couldn't get his head around it and basically she didn't play because she felt kind of outcast um and the, and well she she you know she's one of the more the more committed players she's she's very dedicated to the team and and initially she wasn't going to play in one of the qualifiers thomas the coach said well i'm going to bring her along in the squad because everyone loves having her around she's fantastic you know and then in the end he decides to put her put her in the team for the game and it's quite funny to watch because she's obviously very feminine the way she runs all her mannerisms and then she's putting in really hard tackles and just absolutely smashing through people it just I shouldn't say it, but it, doesn't, it just doesn't look right. It looks quite comical, but you know she's she's an integral part of the team. And and with yeah, Boris Johnson's tackle on the German guy, <laughs> kind <laughs> of yes. <yeah. laughs> um, but you know it, it's quite refreshing to see that somebody, obviously being being gay and being transgender, two completely different things. But whereas in Western football or you know top level football, professional football. We haven't got any gay players. We have certain players coming out after they've retired, like Thomas Hitzelsberger recently. Um, there are no current, currently no out gay professional players. And it's just quite refreshing to see that somebody who is different is is accepted into this team. And you just think, why can't um, all football be kind of more open and like that? You know, it doesn't really make any sense why it's not. It's also got quite a good contrast because this is, Obviously, the the lowest standard of football you're going to see on the international stage, and you compare that with what's going to happen this summer at the World Cup, where it's all multi-millionaires, you know, Wayne Rooney on three hundred thousand pound a week, playing in the biggest stadiums that have used kind of cheap labour, and, and people have died making stadiums. Such an interesting contrast to the two of those. Um, and I've said before, I've got to wrap this up now because we're getting pushed for time. Um, but I said before, it kind of it's about more than football. Football is obviously the central thing to the film, um, to the documentary. It, it's the, it's why they made a documentary, but it's it's more about hope and ambition and you know togetherness, spirit, desire, and and just kind of what it is to kind of be a person who wants to achieve, succeed, overcome kind of past problems, like Nicky the goalkeeper being part of the thirty-one nil defeat. It really is about more than football. So if you don't like football, go and see this because it's about more than football. Um, so that's about all I've got to say for that at the moment. We will have an interview on the website. Um, both of these will be on Fail Critics and Born Offside. I'll have an interview with the co-director, Steve Jameson, and we'll have a written review um, of, of um, the documentary as well. It is out... Um, Sorry, it's out <coughs> nationwide previews from the 7th of May and uh, general release on, from the 9th of May in selected cinemas. That's Next Goal Wins. Uh, definitely worth a watch. And that's all for what we've been watching. And up next is our induction into the Corridor of Praise of Paul Verhoeven. Yes, for the final part of uh, this week's podcast, we will be inducting Paul Verhoeven into our corridor of praise. Joining the likes of Stanley Kubrick, Harrison Ford, Studio Ghibli and <coughs> um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So, Matt, over to you with uh, our look at Paul Verhoeven's career. Sure. OK, I think um, Paul Verhoeven 
got a, a nomination into the um, corridor of praise based off me nagging James continually about it when he was asking for, for suggestions as to who to induct. Um, he probably is my favourite director. He makes um, only tends to make the kind of film that I like to watch, which is gritty adult cinema, uh, 18 rated, no bullshit type movies. Um, so about the man himself... He was born in 1938 in the Netherlands, the son of a school teacher and a hat maker. He happened to grow up uh, near a German um, Second World War military installation which was housing uh, V1 and V2 rocket launchers, which uh, led to quite a dangerous upbringing, as you can imagine. Um, he was constantly exposed to raids by Allied forces, whereby his, his neighbourhood was uh, continually bombed and destroyed. And he and his family went through, routinely went through um, hunger due to food sources in the country at the time, as all the food in the air in the region was getting sent to the German front. Um, so a lot of people were dying of starvation, or at least very malnourished. Um, in interviews that he's done regarding this period of his life, it actually makes it out to be quite an exciting time uh, for childhood, rather than a fearful one, which might reflect upon the type of films that he makes later in life uh, that seem to be lacking the kind of fear that other filmmakers might have on certain themes that he tends to touch upon. Um, he first found interest in film after the war. His father became school teacher and would sometimes bring home the school's film projector, and they would mostly watch Dutch movies. But he was fascinated by Hollywood and cites um, 1953's War of the World as an inspiration for stuff he does later in life. In the late 50s, he moved on to university earning a master's degree in mathematics and physics. But rather than pursuing these subjects further, he delved into his film hobby. Uh, he began making short films, including a documentary called Head Club's Mariners, about the Royal Dutch Marine Corps, whom he served with in the 1960s. This brought him critical acclaim in the French Golden Sun Award for military films. Upon leaving the Navy in 1967, he took his newly found skills to the television arena, making a TV series called Florists, where he stumbled onto a young and talented actor named Rutger Hauer, <laughs> who you guys all know from Blade Runner and various other movies that came after that. The two would continue to work together as they broke into Dutch cinema with 1973's Turkish Delight, which is reportedly the most successful movie in Dutch cinema history, with 27% uh, of the entire Dutch population having seen the film and was nominated that year for the best foreign language film at the Oscars, although it didn't win. Um, Although he didn't win, his stock was on the rise. He went on to make several more epics of Dutch cinema, uh, notably Soldier of Orange, Spetters and The Fourth Man. Uh, and then he joined his compatriot, Rupert Howard, in the United States, where he proceeded to make a string of R-rated mega-hits, um, which we'll be no doubt discussing in further detail. So, Owen, I think, um, touching on his Dutch career, I know that you've seen uh, Soldier of Orange, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, Soldier of Orange, it's, um, it was the most expensive Dutch film ever made, I think, at the time. Um, it's about, uh, also stars Rupert Harris, as you mentioned, um, as he lives through the Nazis' occupation of the Netherlands, so it's obviously quite a personal um, story. 
Um, I kind of, I, when I watched it, it was one of these, I was really impressed by it. Uh, there's absolutely loads in there to be impressed with technically, the way that the characters um, all seem to cope with, with trying to get to uh, Britain during World War II. Um, these Dutch citizens, and but it, there's just something that was missing for me to, to try and grab me, to try and make me um, understand why it was so revered. But at the same time, it is it is recognisably uh, Verhoeven in the sense it doesn't shy shy away from anything. It wants to tell you straight exactly what's on Paul Verhoeven's mind, what he thinks as a person, as a director um, about this story. And from that perspective, um, it was, it's obvious that he, you can see exactly the kind of director he would go on to be, uh, if perhaps swapping matches for, I don't know, corporations and stuff like that, you know. But it's, it's yeah, it's very Paul Verhoeven, if a little bit toned down compared to some of the, uh, as we've mentioned, the 18-rated sci-fi films he'd, he'd later make. Yeah, um, I, I get the impression that um, as he's on the rise in his career, that would certainly be one of the, the earliest films he makes and probably hasn't quite reached the point of um, violent creativity that he becomes known for further mm. down the line by that point. Although, as you say, because he's had first-hand experience of adolescence during the war, and the effect that it's had on his country is going to be an extremely personal account of what it was like to, to live under occupation um, during the Second World War, particularly from the Nazi regime. So, yeah, that's definitely one on my list that, that I want to watch as, as a Verhoeven fan that I haven't gotten around to yet. Um, so is that get a, a yay or nay from you generally, Owen? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a good film. Um, it's a yes. I, you know, I definitely recommend it. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it, th- there's not a lot of humour in it, but the humour that is there is kind of the same sort of thing that, you know, disguises a lot of the dark and depressing stuff that he sometimes tackles in his films. So it's definitely worth watching if you're, um, if you're a fan of Verhoeven, as you should be, as every sensible person should be, um, but you've not seen it yet. And I think it's actually available on Amazon Prime Instant Video or whatever they call it. So, you've got no excuses if you've got a Prime account. <laughs> Definitely want to check out the free trial. Eh? Yes. Cool. Okay, so um, moving on from there, um, I quite recently watched uh, 1980s Spetters, which is a film that he made prior to his launch into Hollywood, which is a, a coming-of-age film, which is somewhat considered to be a Dutch equivalent to Saturday Night Fever. Um, whereby the, the story follows three friends who are up-and-coming motocross enthusiasts, and they all fall in love with the, with the same girl, played by Renny Soudendijk, who's a, uh, a stalwart of, of some of Paul Verhoeven's earlier movies. And she appears again in The, the Fourth Man, which we'll discuss a little bit further down the line. Um, but this film, uh, they're all dreaming about escapism from their mundane life in a small Dutch town. Um it's Rutger Howard's last film in Home before he starred in Blade Runner just a couple of years later. And it also launched uh, several Dutch stars into Hollywood um, notoriety, namely Joan Crabbe, who 
who's also in The Fourth Man and later appears in um, The Fugitive as, as the, the main guy in that movie. But I think he's also in uh, Soldier of Orange as well, although I'm not sure on the role he plays in that one. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, story, and, it, and it's kind of one of those that has art mimic, mimicking life somewhat, in which um, it's a particularly grim tale for one of the film stars, uh, Hans on Tongeren, whose uh, character in the film named uh, Reen is paralysed in a, a motorbike accident, and then his character later goes on to commit a quite grisly suicide in the movie where he drives his uh, car into moving traffic, which is quite grim. Uh, unfortunately, the, the character, uh, sorry, the actor who plays the, the Reen character also commits suicide just two years after this movie. Repeatedly, he was struggling to separate his in-film characters from his real life. Uh, so yeah, quite a sad demise uh, in that respect. Um, but the film, it's, it's a mixed bag of, of highlights of young love and success and, and human tragedy all, all blended into a short story. You have the excitement and the triumph in, in, in the race scenes as they follow their motocross career. Uh, and then you also have the standard Paul Verhoeven, full frontal nudity type things, which he never fails to shy away from, especially in the form of a quite an amusing scene at the beginning of the film whereby the, the three males are comparing dick sizes to who should go after <laughs> the particular hottie who's selling hot dogs at their, their racetrack, um, which adds quite a, a nice bit of comedic te- uh, lightning of the tone there. Um, also features a pretty cool uh, disco dance-off scene set to the music of Bondi's Heart of Glass. But then you throw that in with some of the darker aspects, which the Hogan film is always going to look into, which is the motorcycle accident, which I just spoke about, and the subsequent suicide. And it also contains uh, a homosexual gang rape scene, which makes the one in American history X, for those who have seen it, look very PG in comparison. So, again, it's it's very much Noah Hall's bar, classic the Hogan stuff. Um, the film itself... Upon release, led to a number of protests regarding the manner in which the Hogan portrayed uh, homosexuals, Christians, the police, and the press as manipulative and sordid, and was supposedly one of the main reasons why the Hogan, apart from the money, of course, decided to up sticks and move to the US to, to pursue a greater creative freedom in, in that respect. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting film. Uh, it's one that I wouldn't necessarily put it amongst his very best, but considering that he was a young up-and-coming director at the time, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. And you can certainly see early signs of the director that he was later uh, go on to be from that film. Cool. So are we on to his better films there? I say better, you know, these are ones I consider my personal favourite Verhoeven films. Yeah, we, we, yeah. We'll, we'll probably move on to, to the Hollywood stuff because this is all, all the stuff that we're, we're, we're all most familiar with. Um, so we have, to start with, is 1987's Robocop. Yes, excellent. Uh, it's best film, uh, in my opinion. I take it we've all seen this one. Yeah. 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 yeah so Robocop, set in a crime-ridden uh, dystopian Detroit city in the near future, film centers around Officer Alex Murphy, who's brutally gunned down by a criminal cartel, but brought back to life as the cyborg Robocop by the Omni Consumer Products Group, or OCP, as uh, referred to in the film. Um, I think it's fair to say, and we would perhaps agree that this is 
Verhoeven's uh, best film. Yeah, certainly one of his most popular. Um, interestingly enough, when uh, he was handed the script for, for Robocop initially, he threw it away in complete <laughs> disgust. He, he thought it was a, a silly premise. And it was only when his wife uh, decided to have the bin and have a read through it herself that she was able to um, persuade him to take another look at it and the plot had more substance than the, the title of the movie it suggested. And then eventually Verhoeven signed on to the project and were quite lucky for her intervention on, on that one, I think. Mm. Yeah, um, I, mean, I, like, I was just going to chip in there and just quickly say that um, I think hopefully part of what he recognised was that there's, there's a lot of satire to Robocop. And I think that oh, yes. we've talked about in, you know, Starship Troopers already. That's the kind of thing he can blend satire and absolute brilliant sci-fi action together. Like, very few other directors can manage. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, it's got a good degree of, of, of action in there as well, but the obvious commentary it makes on on American culture satire is very smoothly sort of hidden alongside the, the ultra-violence that goes into the movie as well, so you don't have one sort of dominating theme throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there wouldn't have been many directors around at the time who would probably try to tackle uh, a, a movie in the way that Verhoeven did. Um, Steve, what are your thoughts on Robocop? Um it's, it's, you know, another one, um, like we kind of discussed with Starship Troopers earlier, it's another kind of good action film that you can take as just a good action film, but as also, as you kind of mentioned with his wife reading the script, it's got a bit more depth to it as well, if you want a film with a bit more depth. And he's kind of, you know, it's at his peak, that was the kind of films he was making, was was a film that you could take at face value as just an action film where stuff got blown up and people got killed and, you know, it was quite fun that way. But there was also a bit more to it if you wanted some, a film with a bit more to it. Mm. Yeah, it's also got really good characters in it as well. Um, as Owen touched upon when we were discussing Starship Troopers at the beginning, um, again, it puts in quite a, a strong female character in the form of Lewis, who was Murphy's uh, partner in the film. And she certainly doesn't play any form of Amazon distress type sidekick in this movie. She's very much a, a, a powerhouse in her own respect. But the, the Murphy character, as he goes from a uh, loving, doting father and uncorruptible police officer to being this unstoppable force of, of justice, um, but whose soul is ultimately locked within this machine, um, and it has this ongoing inner turmoil constantly as he's battling against the prime directors that OCP have programmed him with, makes it extremely interesting, uh, aside from how cool the action itself is. And like any good action movie, it has to have some good one-liners, and, and Robocop's pretty much jam-packed with quite a few of them. If you think about um, some of the corny one-liners so that, that it's able to reel off, uh, um, from the scenes like the, the shot through the, the woman's dress, which uh, gets the the bad guy in the delicate area, which is just superbly done. Um, but there's a lot of visual flair to it as well, isn't it? You know, lots of um, style and the, the design of Robocop, the design of this dystopian, well, it's kind of dystopian future. Um, 
everything just looks like a brilliant. It is. It, I mean, it's an, the embodiment. I've said it before on the podcast. It's the embodiment of the eighties, and it absolutely is self-aware. Knows exactly what kind of time it's living in with all the commercialism and the um, the excesses of the eighties. What it's kind of known for, um, and it just embraces it and then starts to poke fun at itself, which it just makes the whole thing really entertaining. Um, it adds a bit of humour to it. And, yeah, as you sort of said, the kids are great, and each character kind of represents something else. So, you know, uh, Murphy is kind of like just a, 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 an honest person, and he's battling with himself against his own humanity, and what does that mean? And that's another bit which is adding satire on top of what is already a very clever satire about the 80s. And, um, I, yeah, I like I said, I personally think it's his best. But I know other people have another favourite of his, which... Um, I kind of understand, and I'm not too fussed about. But to, uh, do you mind me moving straight onto this map of Total Recall? I think. No, no, go for it. Yeah, we can all enjoy talking about Total Recall. Total Recall is the, the other one that some people often refer to as his as their favourite Verhoeven film, um, which I totally understand because it's one of Schwarzenegger's best films, isn't it? If we're honest. Yeah, and, and just touching on that, I was re-listening to the Schwarzenegger uh, Corridor plays with Ed and Steve. You, I think you said that Total Recall was your favourite Arnie film, so I'm sure you've got a lot of love for, for this one. Yeah, it's certainly better than the, the recent remake. <laughs> yeah, I think um, we're all agreed on that. Yeah. No, you know, another, another really good kind of sci-fi action film. Um been a while since I've seen the original, but yeah, um, just good, good fun, and kind of. I think it was an eighteen, wasn't it? I'd be very surprised if it wasn't. But, you know, just yeah. I, I, think, think, I think I think there's a cut of it that is fifteen, but it's definitely an eighteen. Yeah, just an, another all Another eighteen rated film that does what an eighteen rated film should do, and you know, another argument is why we don't have so many today They're making action films desensitised so they can show it to the biggest audience possible but anyway you know um, yeah another good fun sci-fi action film yeah and it was reportedly one of the most expensive films ever made at the time that it came out although it's, it's debatable whether it was actually the very most expensive one made at the time because I think um, Die Hard 2 came out the same year and was slightly more expensive, but it was certainly up there at the time, which for it's unthinkable to, to think nowadays an 18 or, or even a 15 rated movie coming out that would have so much um, big budget behind it. It's almost impossible to imagine. Yeah, so it's quite a landmark in that respect. And another one that has great special effects as well. It shows that he's, you know, He's gone from making the very um, uh, important, personally important um, films in Holland to making massive sci-fi films with, you know, doing visual effects that other directors haven't done at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And Arnold Schwarzenegger's almost preposterous way of performance, the grandiose nature that he brings to the screen just adds to Played character much more. It's it's such a, a superb sci-fi action movie, and there's not people seen Total Recall who, who dislike it. And um, 
yeah, it starts up a, an interesting relationship between the director and one of his his cast being uh, Sharon Stone, who obviously appears as one of the stars in his next movie, which is 92's Basic Instinct, which yeah. has has a very very special place in my heart for me. <laughs> I wonder uh, why. <laughs> a sort of hairy-handed adolescent type memory of mine. Uh, Pre-internet era, basically, has a very special place in my heart. But in, in itself, it's one of the, the most iconic erotic thrillers ever made. Um, it's the story of the police detective, played by uh, Michael Douglas, who's investigating the brutal murder of a wealthy rock star, during which in the investigation he becomes involved in a very torrid and erotically intense relationship with the prime suspect, played by Sharon Stone. And of course, is extremely famous for that particular scene whereby she's uncrossing her legs and has the whole thing, uh, which is probably by the by these days, but at the time it had been pretty eye opening to, to say the least. It's a yeah. pretty cool scene. It was, um, he got into a bit of trouble for this film, didn't he? Um, because it was deemed as a bit misogynistic and, um, well, I, I kind of, I kind of. I think, that, I think the, the gay community had a very difficult time in the way he portrayed, um, yes, gay women and or bisexuality in general, um, almost alluding to the fact that they might all be psychotic in some sort of way, uh, or certainly they're they're all uh, out to get people, <laughs> which is is pretty ridiculous, but um. Yes, that's true. But I think Basic Instinct was, was one of the big ones that caused a lot of controversy. I think I can appreciate what he was trying to do. Um, you know, he's trying to change how thrillers were seen, you know, uh, try and add a bit of um, edge to them, making them really aggressive, making them, they have to be sexy, and it's all the, blah, 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 blah. I just think it was um, a bit of a shit thriller, to be honest. I can appreciate what he was trying to do whilst at the same time thinking he didn't quite achieve it. Uh, it's just the, sec- the second half of the film is really boring, in my opinion. Um, well, it's not quite as boring or as bad as Showgirl, which I think was the film that below <laughs> followed this directly. Uh, yeah, it came a couple of years later, but yeah, it's, it's the next film uh, he sort of did in his Hollywood lineup, and I've, I've seen this quite a few times, I've managed to watch it a couple of times early recently, and it's hard to, to, to stick up for showgirls, because I do enjoy it, but I, I know from a critical point of view that it's it's not brilliant, and <laughs> generally speaking, it's mostly to do with performance and uh, Elizabeth Berkeley, who's just so overdramatic in the movie, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. Uh, she she eats dramatically, she talks dramatically, she fucks dramatically. The whole thing is it, just so over the top. It kind of adds to the psychosis of the character in, 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 in an interesting way, uh, and it makes her a more sort of believable, um, psychotic, in a way, if you want to look at her that way. She's a very broken character, and as we touched upon right at the beginning of the pod, um, the whole premise of the movie is that she uses her sexuality to, to get ahead in life, but it's the, it's the one thing she doesn't want to do, but it seems to be the, the, only the one thing that she has. And I read an interesting um, quote from Tarantino on the movie earlier on, 
this afternoon. I was doing some research for the pod, and um, he says it's one of the best exploitation movies ever made. And that Paul Verhoeven was the only director around at the time who would have the guts to make it, which for me as a fan of, of both directors and, and two directors who focus purely on adult theme movies, I think is, is a great tribute to the man himself. And I can watch Overalls without feeling guilty about it whatsoever. Um, obviously, the, the erotic content in, in the film is appealing from a, a male perspective, and hopefully it is for, for women as well. Um, but I think it does find a niche for people who do have these uh, guilty pleasures in their collection whereby the film can be on paper be so bad yet they can still find enjoyment for themselves out of it and I think Showgirl sort of fits into that category for me and like most Verhoeven movies it actually has a really good score um, it's, it's, it's hard to find but the soundtrack to the movie is very good well yeah Maybe that can be the only positive that, that I mean, yeah, it's great. I think the, the Tarantino quote is, is brilliant. It, it's, it's true. It's really, as a director, who at the time, um, particularly, could get away with making a film like that. Uh, although, yeah. you know, it's arguable how much he got away with making it since it made most of its profits, as you said, when you did the review from home video release and people just sort of bought it. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been massive on, yeah. on the home market, which seems to be the way that we've commented on this on the show before, whereby uh, certain adult-related movies are coming out, stuff like Dread, hmm. and perhaps the, the Raid and The Raid 2 will follow suit, whereby their box office return isn't so great. But people will get a hold of it when it hits the home market, and uh, people will make money from it that way. Whether it's enough to warrant more sequels and, and more investment in 15 or 18 rated movies is, is another thing. But um, yeah, it, it, he's only ever going to make a film one way, and he certainly isn't going to allow anyone to edit it down so that it can make money if it loses the content of the film itself. So. That always gets a bit yeah, from, from me. Exactly. You, you know, you've got to respect him for that. But at the same time, uh, two hours and twenty minutes or whatever it was for Showgirls was way too long. I, I don't even think it was it achieved what he set out to achieve with it. Um, like I said, a lot of respect for him trying something different. Uh, I think he said that basically he wanted to make like um, an old MGM style musical, but instead of like having musical scenes in it, he just had strippers and fucking and all the other stuff that's in showgirls which is odd it's an odd combination um and it, even if he's trying to you know i think he said they interviewed like 200 strippers and dancers before uh, in vegas to try and get an idea of the real lives that these people have um in the scenes so it, it kind of showgirls is going to be like um an expose on the exploitation of these people Vegas. It's not, is it? It's just a really melodramatic, badly um, scripted, eighteen-rated, showy-offy shit film. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. we're gonna have to agree to disagree. From, from, agree technical, to... from a technical point of view, I agree with everything you said, yeah. but I still find it entertaining for some reason. So, what I, I find it... amazing is people like Showgirls more than they like Hollow Man. Well, that, that's, a, that's a different kettle of fish altogether, isn't it? But, yeah. Um, again, um, I think we've we've touched upon Starship Troopers already, which would come in next yeah. in, in um, the uh, kind of one. Need to kind of start bringing this to a close now. So let's, let's uh, 
this with post Starship Troopers, I suppose, um, kind of being in a, in a slight decline, maybe, um, wrap up the rest yeah. of his career quite quickly. Well, the only film he's kind of had a real um, acclaim for since, uh, like, Starship Troopers was um, the uh, the Black Book, which was released not too long ago, I don't think. Was it 2006? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty recent. And that's a, a Dutch uh, movie as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. So he's gone back to the Netherlands and he's made um, Black Book and it's been really successfully received. It's another, is it a war drama again about Nazis in Netherlands? Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I haven't seen it, but I really do want to see it. And it's another one I think is available on um, Amazon Instant Video. Uh, but, you know, universal praise for that. It's, it was nominated for a BAFTA, I think. So, it's, you know, it, I don't think it's had any film nominated for the main Oscar. Uh, or even a Golden Globe. But, you know, you have to buy your way into a Golden Globe, don't you? But the, the Black, I think Black Book's the only one he's had nominated for any kind of major award. Is that right? He had, um... Um... Which one was it? One of these early Dutch films that was nominated for Best Foreign Language. Best Foreign Language, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it was uh, Soldier of Orange. It was one of the others. Yeah, he got one nomination, didn't win it. He's won various uh, awards around the world at various other film festivals, but yeah, he seems to get a. I think his films are too niche for the Academy, let's just say that. Yeah. It's incredible, really, isn't it? That a director like Paul Verhoeven can go his entire life without being nominated for an Oscar. Well, it's the same with Kubrick, uh, which you guys covered in, in excellent detail, how arguably the greatest director of all time and just got almost no recognition whatsoever from the Academy, even if he was considered by everyone else to be the man, so to speak. But it just goes to show what a, a, a political... Uh, seen it is in terms of Academy Awards and how they're sort of dealt out to people. That's right. But I guess he doesn't have to worry now to take Paul Verhoeven because he's made it into our corridor of praise. So, yeah, so that's, that's all the recognition he needs. That's right. Exactly. Their losses are again and, and we will make praise where, where it is due. And uh, just a, an aside to all the great films that we've covered there, he's still continue to be linked to the up-and-coming Schwarzenegger Conan the Barbarian sequel, which, for me, uh, having the Hoven and Arnie, who's one of my biggest heroes, the two came together for that project, that would be something to behold. I would get extremely excited about that. So, fingers crossed that that still uh, reaches fruition at some point. Okay, so welcome, Paul Verhoeven, to the Failed Critics Corridor of Praise. Insert round of applause sound effect here. <laughs> so, um, just to, to, to finish that off, guys, what is your favourite Verhoeven film, Steve, if you want to start off? I reckon it's Total Recall. Okay, good choice. Yeah, mine's Robocop, as I said. Uh, although I haven't got a problem with people picking Total Recall. They're both good films. Just Robocop edges it for me. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Um, I would, I would have to say Robocop. It's, it's a, it's a, a genre-defining type movie. It's up there with the very best action films of the eighties. So, yeah, we'll go for Robocop. Too. Okay. And very, 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 very quickly before we finish for tonight, recommendations for 
uh, next week or so. I'm going for Sunday, uh, ITV4, 10 o'clock at night is the documentary Senna about uh, the Formula One driver Arton Senna. Owen? Uh, okay, yeah, I am going to pick a film which is on Film 4, which we've we've recommended quite a lot, but it's always worth a watch. Um, it's obviously, uh, well, it's not obvious, but District 9 um, is on Film 4 on today at ten fucking prawns. Yeah, fucking prawns. It's on at 10.55pm. Uh, Matt? Yeah, that's a great choice. Um, I've got two, if you don't mind me pimping out one to keep it relevant to what we've just been discussing. The Basic Instinct is on Friday night on Sky Thriller at 10.40. Give it a watch. And uh, for a non-Verhoeven recommendation, go for House of Flying Daggers, which is on Film 4 at 11.25 this Sunday, starring Andy Lau of the Infernal Affairs trilogy and Yi Zhang of Crouching Tiger and Hero. If we're gonna, excellent martial arts movie. If we're going to do two, can I just quickly, very quickly, before we wrap up, recommend Blackfish, the documentary, which both James and I um, were massively impressed by, and Angered by, which is on BBC4 at 9pm, uh, also on Saturday. Okay, yeah, so that's all for this week's Fail Critters podcast. Um, thanks to everyone who has listened and for everyone who's contributed in any way, especially to the to Steve Jameson and the whole team at Next Goal Wins, uh, out on the 7th pre- uh, Advanced Previews and out on general release 9th of May. Um, check out their website and their Facebook page and their Twitter page to find out more. And we'll be back roughly the same time next week with more Failed Critics. James, if you're listening back to this, if you want to go back and edit anything you might consider to be racism, then fine. <laughs> I don't I don't think anything was too bad, but, you know, you're the boss. He won't, he won't edit anything anyway. I doubt he's even listening to this bit. This bit will probably stay in.